He's got a beautiful backswing. That's, oh, he got all of that one. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. Lay up with an iron into the hazard. Well, that wasn't quite what I meant, you know. What is good, everybody? Welcome into the 73rd Hole Podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. Sam Humphreys, Taylor Williams, Jim Woodward with you as always. And thank you guys, all of the listeners, for making last week possible. We had such an awesome week. Thank you to the Hump Man. Thank you to Colby Powell. Thank you to everyone, the producers at the Sports Animal, Q-Tip and Preston, and everyone up there at the Sports Animal who made last week possible. That was an absolute blast doing those reports, and we can't thank the Hump Man enough. Right, T-Dub? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. The praise for the Hump Man cannot be uh, overstated by any stretch of the imagination, just the experience he was able to give me and my dad being able to go down there on Wednesday and experience the part three contest. It truly was magnificent. Just the overall beauty of the course. We got to, got to look around the, uh, the media center a little bit, which is something that not, not very many people get to do. Got to go see where the players get interviewed at and got to see really just where all the behind, behind the scenes stuff takes place that you see even on the golf channel and all that. And so it was really cool experience there and just seeing the overall course, Sam. I mean, it was just, just a thing of beauty. The crowds were just, so hectic on a, on a practice round day. It's something that, you know, you don't see at hardly any other tournament. And just the beauty of Amen Corner, the overall undulations of the course, just how the layouts of the holes go, Woody. And, and, and to me, Woody, my favorite part was, or one of my favorite parts was being able to go and just see where all those legendary shots over the, over the great history of Augusta National have been able to take place. Tigers chip in on, on 16, Larry Mises shot on 11 then you have Bubba's shot on 10 and we got Phil's on 13 and then I mean the list just goes on and on but Woody just being able to be there and kind of recreate those moments was something that was truly special to me I think what both you guys probably would have seen and now that you've been to a PGA now you've been to a Masters uh there won't be long before you boys go to an open and then you might even go over across the pond but if you look at all the golf tournaments you'll ever be in your life the Masters is run better than any golf tournament I have ever seen in my whole entire life. It is perfectly run. They know exactly what they're doing, when they're doing it, how they're going to do it. Even when you have a disaster like they had on Friday when those trees came down, I bet you within two hours, guys, those trees were gone. I wasn't there, and and you guys probably weren't. You might have headed to the house by then because that weather was nasty. But that group of individuals, you like them or dislike them, and they are a tyrant. I mean, it's the gust away or you hit the road. But it's the best run golf tournament on the face of the planet every year. There's absolutely no doubt about that, Woody. T-Dub, I want to get to more of your experience here in a second, but Woody brings up the trees, and I definitely don't want to forget about this. I was out there when those trees blew over, guys, and that weather was insane. We'll get to that when we talk about the tournament and break down the tournament here in a second, but I do want to say this. I walked past where those trees fell over the next day, and guys, it looked like nothing happened. I mean, they, it was roped off where the three trees fell over, but the fact that they can do that much cleanup in that short a time frame 
it, it's literally unthinkable. The things that they can do are literally magic at Augusta National. T-Dub, I want to start, and you mentioned a lot of things, but I want to go through your experience of the Wednesday that you spent at Augusta National. What'd you do when you went in the gates? What'd you eat? You know, talk about a little bit more about seeing the media center, which is insane, right? Um, just take me through the day, and, and it had to be one of the best days with your dad of all time, right? A hundred percent, Sam. It truly was. And so the day started, we got up pretty early with, with the hunt man, drove us in. I mean, just absolute first class service. Just pulled in, didn't have to deal with any of the traffic or any of that stuff. So that was really great. Just walked up right up to the media center, essentially walked in, met, met some very nice people there. That's one of the things about the place, Sam, that that was truly great is that you would think that w- with the, some of the stuff and how strict they are to Gus, you'd expect people to be to be really harsh sometimes but no everyone was just so professional it was like it was like one big chick-fil-a is what it was everyone was just so nice to you <laughs> it was a great way to it put was it. unbelievable that's awesome i mean it truly was everyone's saying my pleasure and all this and i'm like man this is i mean this is just a great overall experience just everyone was so nice and it was the media center as you alluded to sam it's the taj mahal of not just media centers but just buildings in general this thing is immaculate they've got they got all these pictures and paintings on the wall of all the historical moments I mean, just the, the absolute, for, the, how formal it was in there. They have all these different little corridors. You walk in, you see they have all their, uh, you know, sound booths and their cameras and stuff, all that set up. So you really see all the equipment that really goes behind the scenes for all these different uh, companies that were, were there covering the Masters. So that was, that was pretty cool to see. And then we, from there, we go up and we get a little shuttle. We go up to the, the front gate, just driving through all the beauty of it. And, and we sit there, and, you know, there's, there's a ton of people just waiting to run in this gate. And it was actually pretty foggy when we got there. So if, if there was a course or if they were having the tournament that day, guys, they would have had uh, to delay it. So it was it was kind of – took about 30, 45 minutes to be able to see everything. But what was really funny, Sam, was that the very first player that we saw or that we saw when we walked in on the putting green was Phil Mickelson out, out of all people. <laughs> That's and, awesome. And on, on the putting green, what was funny was that he ended up finishing third or second, I believe, for the week in strokes game putting. And – me and my dad, we saw him miss four straight five-footers when we first got there. So it's like, there's no way this guy's going to putt good this week or play good. Well, yeah, that turned, that turned out to be a really good influence. So, so then, Sam, from there, we walked down number 10. And that's one thing I've heard people talk about, but you don't really know it until you see it, just how downhill that tee shot is, right? I mean, that thing is just monumental, just the steepness down. You understand why people on a 500-and-something-yard hole can hit a, a three-wood off the tee box just because – uh, of how far down it goes and how much run it can get. So, and, and then we went over and saw what Bubba's shot was he hit over there. And that's one of the most unbelievable shots you ever see. It was like a 70-yard hook with a gap wedge. Like, like there's no way that you can get it through this gap. So, but, but, then, but then we went down Amen Corner, sat there, and one of my – probably my favorite experience was sitting there and, and just having a beer down there in Amen Corner with my dad. It, it was extremely cool. Got to see just, just a few groups come in, and, and Woody, you you got to play the course. I mean, just the absolute beauty of Amen Corner just cannot be put into words, right? Let me ask you: Were you surprised how big Gray's Creek is? Because when I first started watching the Augusta National, those creeks weren't as um, oh prominent as they are now. When I saw Ray's Creek, it's more like Ray's River. Uh, that is a big, <laughs> it's a big creek. Big, well, it gets smaller. Big, it gets smaller up by thirteen, but by twelve, it, obviously, yeah. it's way bigger than you think. Yeah, it is. And and then I, I love listening to T-Dub's excitement. Can you believe how shallow twelve green really is when you get down there? Oh my From God. the top of that bunker to the back of the green, it might be thirty feet. It is a very small target for those guys to hit. 
that's why everybody hits over to the left. That is the safest place to try to hit that green. But even then, guys, how many balls did we see either go up in the bushes or in the front bunker? I did not see a lot of guys hit it in the creek this week. Or that Because it was downwind. Yep. Yeah, because it was downwind. The wind wasn't really swirling against them. But you saw a lot of guys over the green, up in the bushes. And uh, it's still one of the most difficult shots I've ever hit in my life. And I only did it one time. So T- one time so T-Dub, I got to ask, I mean, did anything surprise you about Amen Corner or maybe 16 or 17 or 18? You talked about 10. I mean, did it look how you thought it was going to look? Did it think? No, I think everything was just a little bit to the extreme. So for like Woody's point on 12, we sat in the very front row behind the tee box. So it's exactly what you see when you're about to hit that shot. And the only thing you can see are the two, the left and right side of the green where the little circles kind of stick out. You can see the very front of those. Other than that, you cannot see the green at all. It, it is, I mean, it's literally the definition of a postage stamp up there. There's there no area to hit this ball. And just to put it in perspective, the first group that we saw come through were Billy Horschel and Matty Fitzpatrick. And they hit three shots between uh, the, the two of them. And, and these shots look fairly similar in the air. One of them landed long of the green, ran up into the azaleas. The other one landed uh, right by the bunker and spun in the water. The other one landed just right of that and then spun back in the water. So you had two players who are top, what, 40 in the world, and and they didn't even sniff the green on a shot that really isn't that long. And you would think that with that area up there, there's just no place to hit it because it's absolutely so small. And out of all the things, Sam, that really shocked me the most when it comes to the course was just how small, actually, the greens are. In, in particular, holes like number six, right? Because it's so tiered and so leveled. Like, where they got the pin on Friday and Sunday or on, on number six? Especially I mean, it's Friday. Just there was no room. Right? No room. It was the hardest pin, and I don't know if I've said this on the pod. I know I said it on the radio show. That pin on Friday, go back and watch the tape. I guarantee you it won't do it justice. That pin on Friday, just over the tier on the right, and I say tier, this thing is like a ski slope at the front of that green. You had about two feet to land it to keep it up on that tier. Otherwise, you're bouncing over, and if you're you know two feet short of that, you're coming 40 yards down the hill, right? T-Dub, it was the hardest pin I've ever seen, and if you hit it on the green to the left, then you have to deal. I mean, like we saw Potgeeter, he, he four-putted the hole, right? I mean, it was an impossible pin. But there's a lot of holes uh, like and, that. And just, uh, th- there absolutely are. And I think that just, just for people who are watching it to put it into perspective, I think the reason it looks a little bit bigger on TV is that the slope that's just to the, what would be, if you're hitting to, just to the left of where that pin would be, it, it slopes off so much there. And on TV, it doesn't look like there's that much of a slope. But the actual area that you could land this ball for it to stick is maybe 10 feet. I mean, like, like seriously, it is absolutely unbelievable how small it is. And then, you know, you're looking at other green complexes. Like, number five's green complex was absolutely crazy. Number 14's was crazy. Um, I was really shocked with how small 15 green was, especially on that left side. It's like, I, like everyone's like, they lengthen that hole because they're mad about people coming in with six and seven irons. It's like, I wouldn't want to hit a wedge off of a flat wide <laughs> of that green, let alone, I know now a three wood or a one iron like Jack Nicholas back in the day. I mean, are you kidding me? There's no way. You know the hole that, that always surprises that me, T Dub, is sixteen, ironically. You always see the great shots, hole in ones and everything, but if you miss that slope, I mean, you have no chance to even keep it within ten feet. Well, and, and I remember, you know, over watching in the last few years, you'd be watching with people 
and, and you'll see a few people get it, like on that Sunday pin, they'll get it in that bowl, and then you'll have someone come through who doesn't get it in the bowl. And people are like, man, how could you not do that? I mean, it, everyone's been doing it. Why can't you do it? It's not a big area at it's all. I mean, the precision, of the, <laughs> the precision of the shot is extreme. And then very similar to on uh, the – I can't remember what two days they had it on, but whenever they have that pin up to the right on 16, it's not to the same extreme as number six is, but it's pretty close. I mean, that area to hit up there That's is right. fairly severe, and you cannot miss right or short of that pin at all. It makes make things very diabolical. And then one thing I thought was really cool was that just the layout of the holes, right? Like – like you can see it from a course map, but you don't really interpret it till you get there, right? So like fifteen and sixteen are right there, and just literally right on the other side of that is whole six. Like it's, I mean, they're just almost side by side of each other. And I also thought it was cool. Like I didn't realize necessarily that number two and number eight go up and down essentially the same hill. Yep. And those trees, like essentially the trees to the left of two are the same trees uh, that are to the left of number eight. And I tell you what, guys, there's a reason they call it. What do they call it? The Delta airline counter or something like that. Yeah. You get it down there on two. Yep. Because you're just going to book your flight uh, whenever you're going to miss the cut. And it makes sense because that is, I don't see how people find their balls down there, Woody. I mean, that is just an absolute jungle. And it's something that I used to think those two holes are pretty easy. But after seeing them in person, knowing that you literally cannot hit it left on either one of those holes makes those a lot damn harder. And Woody, real quick, you mentioned the layout of the course. It's also the greatest gallery watching course of all time there's different holes you can see at the same time and then the thing that i noticed different from 2012 the front nine is a whole lot easier to walk you can walk up the left or right side of pretty much every single hole and meet back where you're trying to get right t-dub it's it's pretty easy to navigate the course as a as a patron yeah i mean woody i was completely shocked with how easy it was to get up pretty close to a lot of these holes. I mean, there was one or two, like on, like obviously you can't go back to 12 and 13, uh, green and tee box, but you could get almost everywhere. And then also there's like this, I didn't realize there's this huge field between holes nine and 18 that you could just go walk <laughs> yeah. through. I mean, I mean, it's literally a field, Woody. It was crazy. Yeah. It's probably two and football fields. Guys, well, and listening to you guys talk about it, it's funny because, uh, DW, if you played there when the Masters wasn't, the the twelfth tee, literally without the gallery behind it, is just out in the middle of a field. Yeah, it's the darndest thing you'll ever see. It's weird almost because there's there's nothing around it. And now picture this, guys. Bobby Jones, he laid that golf course out in the thirties. That's okay? right. And the back nine used to be the front nine, or the first yeah, nine used to it, be the second nine. <laughs> And and so when you think about his vision of thinking, uh, how big are these trees going to get? How do I make these holes fall the way I want to? It's amazing how good his vision was, isn't it? Now that you've been there and you realize that Augusta doesn't sit on this huge, huge piece of ground, even though the whole complex does, the golf course itself, it's pretty tight, really, when you get right down to it, isn't it, guys? Because no. you can do, like you said, there's one hole right next to the other, but you never know it while you're playing it. It's, I, I still will tell you that hopefully one day you guys can play it because when you play it, it is so much different than when you walk it. It, it is amazing how that place just changes and, and goes through that big field you're talking about between 9 and 18, that's where they do the uh, putt, chip, and drive contest for the, the kids. They hit their drivers right down that little uh, section right there. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's another thing that we can get to, T-Dub, 
is it doesn't sit on that big of a piece of land. And the things that they did with that par three course, T-Dub, obviously you went on Wednesday, so you saw the par three. I thought were immaculate, the changes that they made to that, considering the the confines and space that they have over there in that area, right? I mean, the fact that they took, what, the first four or five holes and, and made them completely different and made them better and, and made more room for the gallery and made them more open and brought the water more into play. I thought that that was really cool, too. What were your thoughts about the part three course? I thought it was absolutely immaculate. I mean, in all honesty, I don't think you could get in better shape than, than the actual golf course was. But it was just as good. And, and in some ways, it probably was better because no one's playing on it. You don't have any traffic. You didn't have as many people walking on it because the only day to let you over there is on Wednesday. And, yes, I thought the changes were really cool. You actually had, with the exception of, of the holes that are like number nine that kind of go back into the back and on the top of the hill, there's a lot of people there. So it was kind of a little hard to get a seat. But everywhere else, you, you could easily – find somewhere to, to sit down or walk through, especially on the backside of what would be now the backside of number two on the par three and number three tee box back there. I mean, there's just so much room. And the uh, that's one thing I was surprised about was just how much availability there was. And then even in that same area, Sam, it's the driving range is one of, is maybe the best driving range in the entire world. I Can mean, you it believe the members don't get to use that? That's crazy to I me. I was going to mention that. It's, it's an absolute crime is what it is. So, <laughs> they, I guess they have a tournament driving range, then they have their own members' driving range. It's off to the side. Which that used no, to no, be the didn't. old driving uh, range with the net in the bag. It's just literally like your average driving range. But, T-Dub, tell the people literally about this new driving range with the Grand Media Center at the back of it. It's one of the most immaculate things you'll ever see. Well, that's a really good point, Sam, is the media center sitting behind it wherever you're trying to hit ball shit. There's no way you get to it. It's like 500 yards or something. But it's uh, it, it's so cool just to have that nice backdrop. And, it yeah, does the range look closer is extremely... than that, though. It looks closer than 500 yards because that thing is so massive. I thought the guys could hit that when I first got there. And then you see the balls go up and kind of land like 100 yards short of it. Yeah, you see, uh, like, Dustin Johnson's up there, like, oh, no, and that, that media center window is about to get knocked out. Oh, uh, oh Huntman's got a, he, a missile coming right for him. But then, but then, like you said, it comes up about 100, 200 yards short, however far it is. And uh, But, no, it, the range is so wide, so every player will have access to it. They have multiple greens out there. It looks like they have, uh, you know, some different fairways kind of strip out to where you can kind of play like you're maneuvering into a hole. And that's one thing about – like on a range with drivers, right? It can it just looks really wide. But on this course, you can actually have some precision down there. You have all those greens you can go chip to, and, and the the huge putting green as well. Yeah, it was just absolutely magnificent. I, I saw on a, on Twitter on Sunday, oh Jose Maria Olazabal was just out there grinding away on the range, and just he missed the cut twenty four hours earlier. So, but he was just out there getting after it. And I mean, I think anyone who plays that tournament would do the same thing because. It's absolutely right, Sam. Because just one week a year, it's absolutely horrible. The best driving range in the world. 51 weeks of the year isn't being used. I mean, it's crazy, man. Woody, Woody, I mean, I never hit range balls, but if I was ever fortunate enough to play in the Masters, which I'm never going to do, I exactly what T-Dub just said. If I miss the cut, I'm definitely going and grinding on that range. By the way, T-Dub mentioned the greens on the driving range. The short green, probably 50, 60 yards out, is an exact replica of number two green. Um, the green 150 yards out on the left is an exact replica of number one, and the exact replica of number three is about, I don't know, what would you say, T-Dub, about 180 yards out. I don't necessarily know why they did that because, you know, guys are going for two and two. You should have probably made that one the longer green, but it's still cool to look at. It's 
Yeah, what, what I hear you guys saying, though, over and over and over again is immaculate, immaculate, immaculate. And that's what it was even when I was there, not for the tournament. They, I still believe if there's, if you drop back in the day, somebody would drop a cigarette butt. I think there's a group of gophers that come out of the ground and suck it down because it'll be gone. That's exactly right. Seconds. You never see any trash out there, but there's None. thousands of people. Where, where does the no. trash go? I feel like everyone, I, I honestly, what I think it is, Woody, is everyone knows they're on hallowed grounds, so everyone they, picks up their trash and puts it in the trash can. I, I honestly think that's what it is. I don't know, but it's the dangest thing I've ever seen. I, I actually, when I played it, I, I hit a ball in the pine straw, and I hit it out of the pine straw, and I knocked some pine straw out into the grass, you know? And the caddy went with a little broom-like thing and swept it back into the pine <laughs> straw so there would not be any pine straw on the grass. That's it's beautiful. immaculate. Immaculate is the word you guys use, and that's exactly what it is. Everything about it is thought out more than any of us could ever imagine. It, it, it's still the dangest place I've ever seen, boys. It is, it is Augusta. That's why we all talk about it like it's uh, hollow ground. What do they always say? If, if you're lucky enough to get to heaven, please let there be an Augusta if you're a golfer. That's what That's you right. want to play. That's exactly yeah. right. T-Dub, we, we are omitting one giant thing of the experience of being a patron out at Augusta National. That is the food. So what was the food experience like? for the Williams family out there because I know that I really enjoyed the chicken salad sandwiches. I liked the peach uh, the peach ice cream sandwich. That was good stuff. The sports drink, obviously. The domestic beer, which I, I, I think was Michelob Ultra at the time. I don't know. No one really knows exactly which one it is. It's kind of funny how, you know, if you get in that little group of guys and they're all kind of debating on which one they think the domestic beer is. But... T-Dub, what was your favorite? I tried a pimento cheese again just to say I did. I still don't like the pimento cheese. People can be mad at me. I don't care, but I did it. I did it. Um, but I liked the chicken salad sandwich, and I liked the ice cream sandwiches, T-Dub. What was your favorite thing to eat out there? Oh, the the, the uh, Georgia peach ice cream sandwich was not just the best thing I had at Augusta. It's one of the best things I've ever had in my entire life. It was so good. Oh, my God. And it was so disappointing because, I wanted another one towards the end of the day, and every concession I went to, they were sold out. So, I mean, I wasn't the only person who enjoyed the Georgia peach ice cream sandwich. That was good. And you mentioned the uh, the beer, Sam. It was really interesting. You, like, you don't have a really choice. You walk up, they have three types. They have the crow's nest beer, they have the import, and the domestic. That's all they have. They just pretty much sit them out, just kind of fill them out right there. So that's uh, pretty cool. And you would think that the beer would get hot, but everyone's coming through so fast that it doesn't. I will say, Sam, one of the few things I was disappointed in in the experience What's some of the hot food? I, I had the chicken biscuit in the morning. The chicken biscuit was, was not ideal. I had the uh, the pulled pork sandwich. The pulled pork sandwich that did not really hit as home as some of the other things did. So I was slight disappointment there. It only cost like two bucks or something. So it's not like <laughs> you're really right. good. By the way, we were following Taylor Gooch and uh, a couple of Taylor Gooch's buddies who I know well too. You know, we all got some food and some beers and things like that. And it was like five of us, right? And it all came out to like $27.50. Like, and by the way, when you go through that line, there might be 150 people in the line. You're getting through in three minutes, right? Oh, the, the efficiency was just off the wall. I could not believe it. Like, there's, like exactly what you said. I get in the line, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be here for 20-something minutes. going to miss a lot of golf. Nope, done five minutes. Good to go. 
And one of the best things about it, and the best investment you could ever have, is the, uh, what was it, $5 beer with the crow's nest, and you get to keep the master's cup? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, I'll pay 20 bucks for just a cup by itself. I mean, you get one for 5 bucks, you had, Woody. You had to pay 20 real, bucks for a can at the Southern Hills PGA. Yeah, yeah, exactly, for a beer that wasn't near as damn good. So, I mean, uh, you, guys, you guys are perfect. You're just what I expected today. How all you just going and going. What, what you, now, I got to ask you about the pimento cheese. Are you a pimento cheese guy? No, no I'm, not. I'm not either. I hate, the, I I hate that I'm not, but either. I'm not. I can't even gag one of those down, even if it's even if it is that. But the, the, the chicken salad you talked about sounds awesome. But, guys, uh, I, I love how you both like the peach ice cream sandwich. They said that was the biggest hit at Augusta this year. It so was you all two know. sugar cookies literally combined with a <laughs> massive amount of peach, Georgia peach ice cream, T-Dub. It was, it was big time. Uh, um, it delicious. <laughs> It was absolutely delicious. Uh, T-Dub, any other thoughts of things that I haven't brought up to you about your experience at Augusta? Um, I, I'm trying to think of different things that I experienced. A lot of it was just the weather. You got lucky with the weather. Uh, it was like we were on two different planets the time that you were at Augusta on Wednesday and the time I was there on the weekend, but we'll get to that. Yeah, I mean, it was 90 degrees when we were there. I mean, just pummeling down with heat. I mean, it was, it was a lot better than the weather. Yeah, it was so much better than what you had to deal with him. It's an absolute joke. So, yeah, no, I definitely felt sorry for you. And just thank God you weren't on 17 when that tree fell. I mean, it looks like no that would have hurt if you were underneath that. So, so good. But I, I will say this, too. I want to bring this up. The line for the merchandise store is out of this world. I could not believe how long people were waiting in this line. And, and so one advice I would give to people if they ever do go to Augusta, just go ahead and wait till towards the end of the day whenever you go because there will be le- there will be less people there and it will be a little less traffic. When we first got there, th- they said the line was going to take about an hour, hour and a half. I mean, it was massive. And then the, the line stretches outside, but then you go inside and they have the little black ropes up, you know, so it kind of winds around like a little maze. And, I mean, you can fit so many people in there before you even get in, in the shop. It's crazy. But uh, don't, don't worry about, like, some at the PGA, I know some people had some issues with some things sold out on, like, Monday and Tuesday before they got there, so they didn't get anything. At least on Wednesday, there was not one thing sold out at Augusta. So you could have all of it. So the best idea, in my opinion, was to wait towards the end. That way, go in. There's a little, it's a little less crowd. It's still crowded. It's still a lot of people there. But you'll still be able to have, have your hand picked. But that, that was one thing that really amazed me, Sam, is that it seemed like a lot of people mainly went just to be able to go in the merchandise <laughs> store, and then it seemed like they were just walking around with all these huge bags all day. I mean, that sounds like a low 90-degree weather. Well, they shouldn't have walked around with the bags. Number one, they had one of the coolest checking services that I've ever seen. You just give them your ID, and two minutes later, they have all your information, and, and you give them the bag, and they put the little receipt in there, and it's shipping off to your house. Uh, so I thought that that was really efficient and really cool as well. And a little secret to people on the weekend, if they ever go to Augusta, the stuff that's sold out in the morning is still sold out in the afternoon. So I agree with T-Dub. Go ahead and go to the merchandise tent at the end of the day, T-Dub. I, I, I think that that's and, probably the best advice. And one other tip, too, that's good about going in the day. I mentioned the cups earlier. You can get you a nice stack of cups going, and then if you want to get everything shipped back, you can put it in there and have it shipped back uh, to your house so you don't have to worry about dealing with all the cups. I mean, I think I had uh, 15 or 20 cups or so, something like that. And so that's, uh, that's not something I want to take back in a suitcase. So – 
throw those in there, so that just makes it even a little bit better. But, uh, but yeah, I could not believe the uh, the amount of merch going around. And I saw a lot of gnomes as well, Sam. This was kind of the first introduction I had to the gnomes. <laughs> Have you been able to make it home with a gnome yet? Uh, we don't do the gnomes. You know, my mom's been collecting the beanie babies or the little teddy bears ever since uh, they started doing those with the year on the bottom of the foot. I'm sure she has, you know, a pretty valuable collection of those but i'm not a gnome guy I, all right we're not a gnome family did you get some gnomes what was your favorite piece of merchandise that you bought this week oh my favorite piece no doubt was i got this uh, green bucket hat with the masters logo on it it was it's absolutely sick the best i don't think it's 35 40 bucks it's one of the best investments i've ever made it's already come in handy uh the couple of days since i've been back but but woody if you ever go if you ever go to augustus and you can get a ticket every year you're going to come back with a few gnomes because they said this thing sell out in about 30 minutes but it seemed like every time I, I turned my head, I saw a gnome somewhere. I got to be honest with you on that guy. Uh, you know, Huntman brought me back a couple of hats over the years from when he uh, he was kind enough to do that. But I'm not a gnome guy. Uh, I think it's cool. Your mom likes those beanie babies. If I was to go into that merchandise, I'd probably look for a guess a highball glass that I could drink my scotch in. That they and they have those. They have literally everything that they you do. could ever want. You know what I heard this week that was the best uh, thing that I heard over this past week was I was walking the front nine uh, with Rod Moore, and that's Taylor Moore's dad. And we were watching Taylor play, and he looked at me and he said, "Sam, I thought a lot about this over the past couple days that I've been here, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I think that Augusta National is Disney World." for adults (laughs) he said that it's like every if you look at the map of the course it's like every tourist attraction that you would want and then it's the gift shop at the end right t-dub and woody i mean that's one of the best analogies i've ever heard my entire life and it's so true because exactly right because you get there like you ever go to disney world or anything like that you you don't have a a sad moment on the when you're experiencing it's the same way there you're never in a bad mood. Let's put it this way. If you're in a bad mood at Augusta, you, you have a lot bigger problems in life, and you really should get that figured out because there's just no way to be to be sour on that place. It's just so beautiful. Like I mentioned earlier, everyone around you is I'll so nice. You, I'll like tell a you a way. There was a way. There was a way on Saturday, but other than that, go ahead. Yeah. Well, yes. If, if, I guess on Friday, too, if you have a tree hurling at your head, I mean, okay, that's, that's probably not the best experience. Of all time, so there are there are there are always exceptions to the rule, Woody. But but generally, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, it, you should be in a pretty pleasant mood. And what I love is, T-Dub, before you went, you talked about it being like Christmas when you're a little kid. Well, as you get to being an adult, you're not supposed to have those kinds of great joys, right? Uh, maybe when your first kids are born, there's some joys in life, but you don't expect to find it off course, do you? And only at Augusta can three trees fall in the middle of the golf tournament, not hit anybody, and two hours later, you don't know there were even trees there. Only at Augusta can that happen. Only at Augusta, guys. Let's go ahead and take a break, and then we're going to dive deep into this golf tournament, obviously dive deep into the Masters, and then the RBC Heritage. Uh, the Rory's back chilling heritage is how I'm going to coin it uh, for this show, uh, guys. But before we do that, I do want to remind everybody to go to golfoklahoma.org. We're right there on the front page and get all of your local golf news and it's college golf season. 
see all the things that OU and OSU are doing and all the teams in the Big 12. That is your go-to spot for Big 12 golf coverage. And then also thesportsanimal.com. We're right there on the podcast page. And we had a whole lot of engagement over this past week. And thank you guys for that on thesportsanimal.com. And then obviously anywhere you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, hit that subscribe button. It only helps us out and it's free and it will give you a notification when we drop a new episode. And we're going to be dropping new episodes like they're coming out of style coming up with our live access coming in May and different things that we're going to be doing during this golf season. But let's go ahead and take a break here on Oklahoma's Leader in Golf, the 73rd Hole Podcast. When something the size of a golf ball hits your roof, you need to call McRae Roofing. McRae Roofing is Oklahoma's designer roofing service specialist. For years, Jeff McRae and the experienced team at McRae Roofing and Exteriors have served fellow Oklahomans by helping them with their roofing needs. McRae Roofing uses only top quality materials and professional crews to make sure that each job is done right so it will give you the years of service, security, and protection you need from the unpredictable Oklahoma weather. McRae Roofing offers residential and commercial roofing, ventilation services, and custom copper designs. McRae Roofing is dedicated to exceeding the homeowner's expectations. It's not just a roof. It is your home's crowning glory. Call McRae Roofing today at 405-692-4000. That's 405-692-4000. Make sure to also visit their website at McRaeRoofing.com. That's M-C-R-A-Y Roofing.com. Don't get caught with a leaking roof. Contact McRae Roofing for your free inspection today. And we are back here on the 73rd Hole Podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. Definitely go hit that subscribe button and also follow us on our social media at the 73rd Hole on Twitter and at 73rd Hole on Instagram and also at Sam Humphreys 34 and T-Dub, give the people your Twitter. I know you were tweeting some good stuff this week as well. It's at T underscore Williams 101 and Instagram is T Williams underscore 10. And T-Dub tweets out a lot of good analytics things, especially on uh, PGA Tour Weeks, and we'll get to the RBC Heritage later on in the show. But we got to recap this wild tournament, guys, and I feel like we should just start at the beginning. John Rahm, Brooks Kepka, and then obviously earlier in the day on Thursday, Victor Hovland, they all got out to a great start, shooting 65 in that opening day. And guys, the weather was just primo on that Thursday and really most of Friday, too. Um, what were your thoughts about those guys getting off to hot starts? I know that John Rahm paid his ode to Seve, you know, with the, the four putt on the first hole, the little I miss, I miss, I miss, I make, right? And then goes on uh, to shoot nine under the rest of the day. Uh you know, Brooks Kepka obviously vaulting himself into contention with that first round. Uh, and then obviously Victor Hovland doing it in the morning. Guys, it was one of those weird days where I felt, T-Dub, on that first day that Victor Hovland might have a two or three shot lead at the end of the day, but the, the wind was never really enhanced throughout the day. And the, the weather was just absolutely primo the entire day. And then, obviously, uh, they got their fair share of it later on in the week. But what were your thoughts at the beginning of the tournament? 
Well, it's something you don't say very often. You did mention Victor Hovland was the up and downs that he had on that back nine were just absolutely crazy. He had that crazy one on 10 where he was right of the bunker, that short-sided back pin. I mean, that shot was just absolutely stupid. And then yeah, he had about a 40-yard little pitch shot on 14 that he got up and down because he pulled his eight iron about 50 yards. I mean, it just was not a very ideal shot. But, but what's also funny is that – so John Rahm on the first show I had, uh, I was watching it on my phone. That's when we were flying back. And it's literally, like, right as soon as our plane lands and we're waiting to uh, to unload or whatever, and as I'm watching it, I just watch Ron four putt. And I'm like, oh, great. Because he's my one-and-done pick. So I'm like, oh, great week with picks. Oh, I just wasted one of the top three players in the world uh, on a freaking major and where he's not going to finish very high. And so I'm all cussing myself and all this. The next thing you know, look down, he shoots 700, playing 900 golf after that. Are you absolutely kidding me? I mean, that's crazy. Birdie two and three. Just to, So he instantly got it back. Play the first, uh, play the first three through even with a double, and then birdies seven, Eagles eight, birdies thirteen, fifteen, sixteen, and eighteen coming in. Woody, I mean the stuff that John Rom had on that first day. I know that he wasn't leading individually, but uh, after that first hole, he looked like it was going to be his week. Obviously, Kepka played really good in the second round to get a little bit of a lead, but John Rom in that first round just looked absolutely unbeatable. Those final seventeen holes. You know, we said on the radio shows over the weekend that back. Let's say three or four years ago, if John Rahm four puts the first hole, I don't think John Rahm even has a chance to win the golf tournament. As fiery and as mad as he gets at himself, uh, it spoke volumes to me early on, gentlemen, when he could four putt and still shoot 65. I kind of knew right then that he had found something. And uh, did you guys read, I don't want to get way off the subject, but that, you know how they fixed his driver? Did you guys read how they ended up fixing his driver, Callaway, how he got him back where he could hit it? Did you read about that? I did not see that. Yeah, Woody, give us a little insight into uh, that. Okay, this this was really cool. I, I was like, because Sam, you were right all along when you said he was aiming too far left. And he had started doing that because they didn't like the setup of the driver. What he ended up going to, now you guys ready for this, his driver was 11 and a half degrees. Wow. What they I didn't see that. That's crazy. Doing, yeah, I thought that was got, nice. They got his driver to 11 and a half degrees, which would then create enough spin on the golf ball for him to hit his patented fade. And what was happening, those shots he lined up left and looked like he was pulling them, he, he wasn't pulling them so much as the ball didn't have enough spin on it, so it would just keep going dead left. And they worked on that, and you know where he found it was just a little bit in Austin before he got there, and he told them, guys, we found it. Now, doggone it, why do I not get this kind of information before the turn? <laughs> Good Lord, why would have loaded up on him? But if you notice, he had his fade back. He did that by adding loss to his driver. And, you know, a lot of people out there, that's something they need to listen to about this. Our listeners need to pay attention to this. You can have a lot more loss on a driver than you think. Now, John Rom has so much lean through the shaft and through the ball that he still hits an 11.5-degree driver pretty low. As you notice, his ball flight, Sam, I'm sure you got to see his ball flight in person. Yep. But did you notice he had that cutback with that driver? That ball was moving again, wasn't it? Absolutely. I don't think I saw John Rom miss way left throughout the entire week. And obviously I didn't see all the shots because I was out there on the course uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, T-Dub. But for the most part, I I think that John Rom, when he did miss the driver, it was right. And he can control that if it's a one-way miss, right? But he can't control when he starts double-crossing that fade. 
No, he had, he had every single fairway in the first round. He only missed eight fairways for the entire week. That includes playing in the horrible conditions. When he did, and those fairways are, like people say, it's a fairly easy driving golf course. Those fairways are not wide at all. So to be able to hit that many fairways over the course of the time is a lot. And and what I saw during it is what he, he got exactly right. The fade was just absolutely back, and it was fading a decent amount. You saw it on a good amount of holes with the exception of 13, which was very impressive where he's able to hit a draw around that hole and put himself in primo position uh, to, to approach that par five. But, but no, you're exactly right, Sam. The, the fade was there. And, uh, I mean, what, I mean, what do you just kind of talk about that? Whenever you're struggling with one part of your game so much, that that's actually your catalyst. But then all of a sudden you get it back? I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, if we had this information beforehand, I would have picked him a hell of a lot more than the one and done. I would have bet almost everything I had on him. And, Woody, one quick point, because I saw it in person. I was right behind him on five T-box in that final round when he's battling Brooks Kepka, obviously. And he didn't hit a very good drive on five. Kind of caught it off the heel, it looked like. Kind of spun out to the right. But what did Lee Trevino tell us, Woody, back in the day? You can talk to a fade, but a hook or a pull, I'll, I'll add in there, won't listen. Because, guys, he was missing left when he wasn't playing very well the three weeks that he teed it up prior. But the bad drives that I saw John Rahm hit, and like I said, he caught the one on five off the heel, spun up a little bit, and it's still just fine, just over on the right side a little bit, still has a shot into that five green. I saw that, uh, you know, a couple times. But other than that, he was absolutely striping it. So it's limiting your misses, right, Woody? Oh, big time. And Lee Trevino had some of the best quotes ever. Not only did he say that about a fade, but he also said that golf pros that putt for pars are like dogs that chase parked cars. They don't last very long, okay? <laughs> so so when you think, Sam, what kudos to Callaway and their tech guys, that they kind of went to Brom and gave him different heads, and they came up with that ability to put that loss on the club, which in his case gave him more spin. You know, a lot of times we talk about we don't want a lot of spin on our driver. Well, see, John Rahm didn't have enough spin, so he couldn't get that golf ball to turn. It would just literally go on a straight line, which was a pull for him. So when you take a world-class player and you have a driver that he's been so happy with, and then all of a sudden he loses it, man, you could see what happens to the confidence. He goes from shooting 65 at Bay Hill to 76, 76 on the weekend. And I've always said that out on tour, they always talk about putting, putting, putting. Well, you've got to drive the ball well. Even though they don't seem to drive it as straight as they used to, they still drive it good enough. And John Rahm must drive it well to put himself into position to win. Well, guess what? He does it at best. He missed eight fairways for the week. Incredible. So technology can be your greatest friend. It can also be an enemy if you get too technical. But, boy, they figured it out. And like I said, all of us are saying, God, I wish I'd known that. Doggone, I wish I'd known that. Guys, there's no doubt about it. Let's dive into that second round, and obviously they're all going to run together on us because of all the delays and everything, but one thing that I do want to focus on and not forget to mention is the amateur Sam Bennett. Going your first 
36 holes with only one bogey at Augusta National. Now, I know he shot 76-74 on the weekend, kind of to be expected from a, an amateur, a guy that hasn't been in that position ever in his life, but I know a lot of people were kind of talking crap on Bennett because of his long pre-shot routine on Sunday, but guys, I love this guy's swagger, and he kind of reminds me a lot of a healthy Daniel Berger, kind of how he works his way around a golf course, a little bit of a grinder, but has that confidence. I don't know if you guys saw any other analogies, but I see this guy being a success on the PGA Tour sooner rather than later, T-Dub. 68-68 with one bogey in his first two rounds at his first Masters. Unbelievable, right? Oh, 100% it is. I mean, yeah, how he played in that first round. I mean, I wonder how many amateurs have gone bogey free in a round. Or just how many? I mean, how many bogey free rounds do you see it against it? Even just for professionals. I mean, it, it happens a decent amount. But I mean, from an amateur, I mean, it's just absolutely crazy to see. And the reason was he was just putting so extremely well. He gained uh, over two shots putting in the first round, and then he gained uh, over one shot putting in the second round. And he actually hit the ball a lot better in the second round than he did in the first round. He gained almost three shots approach in that second round, but in the first round, he he lost shots approach so uh but no I, I thought it would have been cool woody if Bennett would have been able to get in the top 12 which would have assured him a spot in next year's masters and i think with the way he played in those first few rounds he earned it in all honesty i you, you expect him to come back from an amateur uh you expect it to happen at some point but in all honesty i think the weather draw could kind of hurt him a little bit because uh, that weather is harsh to play in on that golf course and the uh all this the uh the stress and stuff no matter how confident you are there are going to be nerves be dealing there i think when you add that, that weather element i think it was just that extra layer that uh, really hindered him quite a bit I agree 100% with you there, buddy. I think you called that spot on. I think if the weather would have stayed pretty good down there, I think this Bennett, this young man would have been – I think he would have finished in the top 12. I really do. He might have finished in the top 10. I think all the pressure and then you throw all those weather conditions, it, 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 it becomes a little bit probably almost overwhelming. It was a lot of pressure for a young man, but, he, boy, he played so good. I do think he needs to work on playing a little bit quicker, but... Oh, I completely uh, agree. I just wanted to focus a little bit on how well he was actually playing to put himself in position for people to see that pre-shot routine because a lot of amateurs don't even put themselves in that situation. Oh, Lord, no. And I think the weather caused him to be a little slower, too. Don't get me wrong, Sam. I think think there was a lot of things that factored into that where he was a little bit more deliberate... uh, you know, Cantley, on the other hand, doesn't have any excuse. No, I, I, we'll I'd rather go have a root. I think yeah, I'd, I'd rather have a root canal than play with Patrick Cantley. Guys, I, I, real I would, quick, while we're talking about that, and we've heard, let's talk about that for a second because I was out there, and I will give this to Patrick Cantley. Remember, on Sunday. They, in the final round, they went off both tees again, so they caught the guys that went off the back nine by number two. And he was right that he said there was a backup on number two, but he had no excuse on any of the holes on the back nine for playing that slow. I was out there, guys, on number 13. I guarantee you, you can go back and watch the tape. Patrick Cantlay spent about 10 minutes on that third shot after laying up on 13 and Victor Hovland was clearly upset with him and went ahead and hit his chip shot as Patrick Cantlay was walking up to the green, guys. Yes, it was a slow front nine because they went off both tees, but the back nine, Patrick Cantlay has no excuse, and we even saw some of the quotes from Patrick Cantlay yesterday. He said, quote, 
when you play a golf course like Augusta National where all the whole locations are on lots of slope and the greens are really fast, it's just going to take longer and longer to hole out. I think that that's just the nature of playing professional golf. Uh, that was in response to Brooks Kepka's quote saying the group in front of us was brutally slow. John went to the bathroom seven times during the round and we were still waiting. Guys, Yes, it's not an excuse. By the way, it's not an excuse from Brooks Kepka. He was asked the question, what did you think about the slow play? And he said that quote about John Rahm going to the bathroom seven times. I feel like he was actually, you know, paying respect to John Rahm saying he handled it better than I did, right? And so my point here, guys, is that it's not an excuse from Brooks. Patrick Cantlay has to speed up, but Patrick Cantlay's not lying about the front nine that it wasn't his fault. So it's kind of all a little cluster, T-Dub. But I do feel like the moral of the story is Patrick Cantlay has to speed TF up, right? There's some validity to, to all the com- to about those comments for sure. Because it was slow for everyone. It truly was. But also, it's like, okay, if it was going to be slow, it might add, a, a, you know, 20, 30 minutes or whatever. But then you get Patrick Kate, like, as you said, taking 10 minutes to hit a shot on th- on a little wedge shot. I mean, come on. I mean, it took two. And Victor Hovland should have done that. I mean, at that point, it was getting a little damn ridiculous, for in my Victor. opinion. I really did. It can, it can be hard, Woody. Can it to be playing with someone that slow? I mean, in reality, you should be able to say, okay, that you should be able to overcome something like that. But in the heat of the moment, it's kind of hard to control your emotions when you're playing with someone who's taking – so abundantly show, slow. I remember uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of gamesmanship in the 2005 Masters. They said Tiger was starting to play a little bit more slower because DeMar- uh, Chris DeMarco liked to play fast. So uh, I mean, Woody. I mean, it, it can be something that that really does affect you. Even though you should say, "Well, I can get past this," but in the heat of the moment, it, it really doesn't work that way. Oh, I think we all have run across. I know back in my days of playing some even section PGA events and other tour events. Uh, you get guys that are notoriously slow, and I, I don't know that they all think it's gamemanship. A lot of them do, though. T.W., you're you're right. I, I think a lot of guys play some mind games, and uh, I I think that in golf, though, you know the the gentleman side of it. If you know you're slow, uh, you know work on it. Try to try to do things that are a little bit better um, as far as to speed you up, whether it's walking quicker to your ball or uh, or uh, getting through all your yardages before it's your turn to hit. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can get that done. But two grown adults that are PGA golf professionals that hit the ball pretty good, to take five hours to play a round of golf, something's wrong there, gentlemen. Something's you you wrong. know what they should have done, I, guys? And I, I'm going to say this and I don't want it to feel like I'm taking up for Patrick Cantlay because he does have to speed up, but I don't understand why Augusta National didn't give some leeway time for those guys to get through the back nine that started on the back nine. I mean, why not move those tee times back another 15 minutes? And I think the reason why they did that is because they definitely wanted to ensure a Sunday finish and give them some time for like a a three-hole playoff, right? And so um, I think that that's probably why they did it. But unfortunately, uh, you ended up with slow play because of it, T-Dub. Hey, guys, before you go to T-Dub, did you hear the best quote of that, though, of of the week? What's that? When they were asking Bruce Kepka, I think there was another. Uh, it was it might have been Kepka, or it was a reporter that when he said that, you know, Rom went to the bathroom seven times. We were still having to wait, and they said, well, either Rom was a genius or he needs to see a urologist. 
that's exactly that's exactly right. T Dub, any final that was thoughts one of the best on the slow of the play? Week. Sorry. Yeah, no, that was great. That, that I love that. That that is that is an awesome quote there. I mean, he just trying to stay hydrated, Woody. I mean, that's uh, that's a, he's not a uh, not even every other whole pace there pissing. I mean, that's really not that bad. I just think it's impressive to be able to find the bathroom that many times out there because you got to maneuver some ways. I know they do have some players' bathrooms and things like that, so that makes it a little bit easier. But 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 back to the slow play. Yeah, yes, they they should have probably spaced them out a little bit more. But you're 100 percent right. They were really just trying to make sure they got done on Sunday because the last thing they wanted was come back on Monday because. There was a realistic possibility we talked about being a two-horse race for the whole time that there was going to be a playoff, so they needed some time to make sure they didn't have one playoff hole, then it would be dark and they have to come back. That wouldn't have been uh, the best look around. But uh, as far as just uh, who who does play slow, because we look at like Bryson's notorious for being a slow player, Cantlay's definitely moved himself into that group as well. It's like uh, my biggest theory on it is you should be able to implement some sort of shot clock type system. I know they've done it in a DP World Tour event. They do it on every other major sport. Now I don't see why you can't have at least some way to do it. You'd have to have it's working some, good uh, in baseball, you know, like, isn't it? Uh, a lot of people said that it would never work in baseball, and they did it, and it's working. So I don't know why we yeah. can't do it 100%. in golf. Well, they do have one. Yeah, but they don't they use it. Have one. They don't use it. They never use it. But but you're supposed to. The first guy hitting has forty five, forty or forty five seconds, and the next two have thirty seconds to hit their shot. Yeah, but they never, you, they never penalize they anybody never for do that. They, no, they, that's, the least, that's the least enforced thing. And the Brooks kept a caddy yelling five at the other one. It's the least enforced <laughs> than that one. It's not enforced in any way, shape, or form. Never has been. And until they do, we're not going to really see golf played as fast as it should be played. By the way, Woody, T-Dub just brought up the Brooks Kepka situation on Thursday, whereas Caddy said five, and then Brooks looked to maybe say five with the glove. He, he denied it, said that he was just putting his glove on. Um, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of opinions from professional golfers, and basically all of them to a T say that that was no big deal, that that happens all the time, even if he was trying to give out information. Number one, I mean, Gary Woodland could have just looked in Brooks Kepka's bag and saw what he hit, right? And so basically, to me, it's no big deal, right? As far as, to me, yes, it's against the rules, but it's one of those things that's not against the rules. I think that Chambly and a number of people wanted to make a big deal out of it, and partly because it was Brooks Kepka, okay? And whether we like it or not, even Jim Nance, as professional as Jim Nance was, he made a little snide remark on about the walking path, okay? He so, said Brooks Kepka on the CW, the crosswalk. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just yeah. a low blow. It's a low blow. Uh, but yeah, hey, by the way, a- by the way, the ratings were better than they've ever been, but we'll get to that after we recap the golf tournament. But you're exactly right. I feel like if, if it wasn't Brooks Kepka or it wasn't a live player, we wouldn't yeah, have heard anything it, about this, right, Woody? I, I really don't think you would have. And now, don't get me wrong. I don't think on Sunday afternoon that Brooks Kepka's going to tell John Rahm what he was hitting. But Kepka and Woodland are good good friends. They're, they're buddies. And you can't tell me in a golf tournament, when you played with somebody, Sam, that you like or get along with, and you hit a shot on a par three or a par five, whatever it is. And the I've done it many times, at, Woody, and I don't consider myself a cheater. You know what I mean? No, no, it's just, you know, it's a courtesy, you know, you just, and let me tell you something. You can't always trust whatever the other guy hit because you don't know what he, what kind of shot he was hitting. Okay. Or how well he struck it. It's not that big of an or, advantage. Or the loss of the irons would. Exactly. I mean, I might say to you guys, I hit five iron, 
But five iron me and five iron to you guys means nothing. But if you're even if we were close to hitting the same distance, I might have hit a little five. I might have taken something off of it. I might have hit it as hard as I could hit it. it. Just because I say it's a five doesn't mean the deadly squat is what I'm telling you. To start nitpicking on that kind of stuff, ah, you know, gee whiz. Come on, guys. T-Dub, any do thoughts that. on it? Do you disagree with us? I think it was no big deal, and I only think that it was a big deal because it was Brooks. No, I, I do 100% agree, and I do think that if it really was the other player that was one of the 18 on live, I don't think we would have heard. But there, there may have been some little bit of hits on something like that, but it never got would have gotten – the extent that it did for sure. And, and yes, I'll say that whenever I played in tournaments, I never asked about it. Maybe I should because, I mean, and honestly, if, and people have asked me before, and I just tell them, like, what am I going to do? Someone asked me, what'd you hit there? Which, oh, is technically, which is technically a penalty on both of you, right? It, it's so it's so stupid, right? It's, it's not a penalty. It, I mean, it is in the rule book, but at the same time, this happens every single week. It definitely does, and, and yes, it, it just, it's, a, it's a statement kind of ruling to show that the rules of golf are really kind of a joke at the end of the day. Yes, there are some that are good, but mostly uh, they're really convoluted. They're hard to understand, and this is this is something where, especially going uh, to be a two-shot penalty for two people for guessing that? I mean, that's just kind of a little bit damn ludicrous. Okay, Sam, let, let's look at it from a, just a pure perspective here. What if the caddy gives a signal to somebody who's working for CBS of what his player just hit? Dottie Pepper standing on the tee, and the caddy says, puts up a five, yeah. five, you know, so, and she knows it. Well, what if the other player sees it? Okay, it's not so a penalty. Just like I can go, Woody, if you and I are playing together in a tournament and, I, and you, you are on the bag. tee, I can go look in your bag and see what you're hitting. It, it's a, such it a stupid a rule. Right? Dumb rule. Dumb rule. Dumb rule. Dumb rule. Dumb rule. Move on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, guys, let's go ahead and move on to Friday afternoon. And like you guys already know, I was out there on the grounds, and I was at Amen Corner throughout all the rain delays. And, guys, the first uh, little rain delay that they had, I have an interesting story about. So they took the guys off the course for about 30 minutes um, and that was right when Patrick Reed was on number 12, guys. And so they made all of the patrons leave. But I was sitting up there close to the ropes, and I asked Patrick Reed's caddy, what did they say, how long? And they said, we're holding in place, restarting in 30 minutes. So I lingered around on 12 and moved right up to the front row on number 12 at Augusta during the golf tournament, which, guys, this doesn't happen ever. I mean, those people, they can't run, but they fast walk down there to Amen Corner and put those chairs there, you know, early, early, early in the morning. And I definitely did not do that. I was out there following some other guys throughout the, the morning of Friday, which was beautiful weather, but I caught a break there. And then Tiger Woods was on number 11, and we're watching Tiger Woods, and all of a sudden they blow the horn again. And guys, let me tell you that that's when the rain and wind and terrible weather really moved into Augusta, Georgia, because 
that is right when the trees fell. And I don't know about your opinion on this, but to me, there was no lightning in the area. I was out there. There was zero lightning. It was just very windy and spitting rain, basically sideways. And we've heard a lot about John Rahm getting the bat end of the draw. He was playing after Tiger Woods. But I'm looking at his scorecard here, and he played 12 through 18, one under par in that second round. If they would have had to play on Friday evening instead of Saturday, guys, John Rom would not have played 12 through 18, one under par. You can't convince me of that. The wind was even higher than it was on Saturday. Yes, Saturday was horrible, and the, and the rain was even worse than it was on Friday evening, but trying to navigate Amen Corner at 11, 12, 13, and then especially 17 and 18, in that 20 to 25 mile per hour wind would have been a tough ask. And guys, like I said, it was pain because I never got to see Tiger hit that tee shot on the most famous part three in golf because they called it as Tiger was on number 11 and I was sitting there first row, but it was great. I sat there for a couple hours watching shots. Um, but T-Dub, did you have any thoughts about that? I know that John Rom definitely got the bat into the draw, but it could have been worse. Well, first of all, Sam, I just want to say that was extremely smart on your part to, to ask Patrick Reed's caddy how long you were going yeah, to be. Patrick I mean, Reed that just, finally he, did something good for the world. How about that? He got me a better spot at 12 at Augusta. Let's let's everybody give a round of applause to Patrick Reed and his caddy. I mean, that is a chestnut checkers move, my friend. Seriously, that, 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 that was next level there. And and so you, you, you almost paid it off to the highest extent imaginable. But, but at least you got halfway close to seeing him on, on 11. It's a little bit away. It's not that far. But, I mean, just all oh, so close to seeing Tiger on 12. That would have been absolutely magical. But, but you mentioned away. the wins. One shot away, T-Dub. I mean, five minutes. That's all you needed. You needed five minutes. That's all you needed. But my, my question, Sam, is how hard did that wind get blowing? Was it like a 50, 60-mile-an-hour wind to no. blow those trees down? Like, no. It was not that strong, it, and that's the weird part about those trees. That's why I think that they were probably planted within the last couple of years because that wind was not that strong, and I know that it sounds crazy to plant 100-foot trees, but that's what Augusta National can do, and unfortunately, with the rain mixed with the 25-mile-per-hour winds, I think it softened the ground and allowed those trees to fall over even with you know 20 to 30 mile per hour winds and yes the winds were much higher than they were on Saturday um and and that's why I think that John Rahm could have you know struggled a little bit on that back nine on his second round but at the same time it was not strong enough to blow over a hundred foot tree T-Dub it didn't add up and by the way they said that it was a weather delay I just don't think they could have played 17 with a tree crossing the tee box, T-Dub, and, and they caught a huge break not having to play in that high winds and rain on Friday evening. Well, you know, what the thing about it to me was, was that, you know, watching on Friday evening, it didn't look like Sam was saying, it didn't even look that bad on TV, and you're thinking, well, there, is, there must be a huge storm blowing in. It must be coming in pretty hot, but then at the same time, then you find out, what, 20, 30 minutes later on, on Twitter, you see, you see the huge trees fall, and then it all makes sense, but I mean, whenever you look at what they played on and then on Saturday compared to what they played on Friday, you would have thought, hell, they could have played another two or three hours had those trees not fallen. It comes back to this, too, guys. I think that was out of just fear. Uh, because those trees came down, they didn't kill anybody, thank God. Um, I think they just decided, you know what, we're not going to do this. And you're right, Sam, those trees, they're going to block 
the guys teeing off on uh, 17. It, it just, you know what? They, you guys said it all along that Sebi seemed like he had his hand in this golf tournament with Rom winning. Uh, I don't know. You, you know, call it what you want. If you believe or don't believe, I don't really care. Um, I do believe that. I think there's a lot of things that happened on those four days that he was destined to win this golf tournament. We talk about it all the time. And it was John Rahm's week, period. All right, fellas. So, obviously, play was suspended after the trees fell down on Friday evening. And then we come back out Saturday. And, T-Dub, let me tell you that that was the most miserable weather imaginable and like I said it was even worse on Friday (laughs) Friday evening if that's even possible uh but I will say that obviously the final group played you know almost seven holes on that uh Saturday and when you were out there following at Augusta National and trying to follow every shot of a group it's very easy on a normal day. Unfortunately, when it rains, everyone has umbrellas surrounding the green. So the, the green is completely blocked out. Uh, so I wasn't able to see anything. And then we get to seven, and I was trying to follow Brooks Kepka. And by the way, I watched Tiger uh, on that Saturday morning because Tiger was playing a couple groups behind uh, Taylor Gooch, and I got to watch both of them hit some shots around Amen Corner. I wanted to say that I saw Tiger Woods around Amen Corner one last time. And guys, let's talk about that real quick. Let's start with Tiger. Tiger on that Saturday morning looked worse physically than I have ever seen him look in his entire career. And I heard someone on the Golf Channel say that it was a heavy-footed day where Yes, even if you're walking in the fairway, it was mushy and just soft and it's tough to walk in and it's hard on your legs and feet and ankles and that's not what Tiger Woods needs. Unfortunately, T-Dub, two years in a row, Tiger Woods makes the cut at Augusta National and then unfortunately gets by far the worst weather imaginable for Tiger being at this physical capacity at this point in his career. It surely was, and, and that's kind of what the forecast predicted, which is why a lot of people weren't extremely high on him, and probably so. I mean, even in the first round when he had pretty good weather, he shot a two over 74, did birdie 15 and 16 coming in, so that showed some signs, but he really just did not play very well. And the thing, Tiger's the best iron player of all time, and his irons were just extremely off. He lost more than two shots approach in the, uh, what was it, tw- uh, 30, 40-something holes that he ended up playing. And, and that Saturday, Sam, as you alluded to, he needed some help from his uh, good friend Justin Thomas just to make the cut, and then uh, Sun JM kind of helped him out as well. So he just barely gets in, but comes out in bogey's 10, and then he pars his next few holes. Um, and then actually, uh, then on 14, he makes a bogey and then doubles 15 after hitting a wedge in the water and, and then hits a, one of the worst shots I've ever seen on 16, lands in the middle of the pond. It was like 15 yards short of where Xander Shoffley hit it a couple of years ago with Johnny Pepper's wall of wind. That shows how bad of a shot it was. And then his last shot he hit on 17, you could just tell he was in pain. He was hopping around. And, and with, without an act of God of him just feeling miraculously better the next day, there was no chance he was going to be able to play what would that have been, 29 holes in a stretch of uh, one day. So, yeah, so yeah, Woody, it, it is disheartening to see that Tiger wasn't able to, to see a little bit more health. But this weather has a lot to hinder. And, and unfortunately, I feel like unless he gets perfect weather at some of the majors coming up, he's, uh, he's not going to – this is going to be something that we see on a repeat basis. I really do hate to be a black cloud here, guys, but 
I'm afraid these injuries have just they've just made him where it's just going to be real hard for him to compete. I I hate it. Uh, I think he'll come back and he'll play maybe one or two more Masters. Uh, I think he'll try to play. I don't think he'll go to Oak Hill at the PGA. And the reason why is it's cold. Buffalo, New York, and May, guys, I played a senior PGA there. It gets cold then, too. It's not a pretty place to play. And it's a long walk. It's a hard walk. I think the the Open in L.A., maybe the U.S. Open, uh, the Open over in Scotland this year, yeah, I think I could see him there. What we need to hope for, if we really want to see Tiger Woods play golf, is when he does turn 50, he'll play some champions events out of a cart. And I hope he does. I hope he does because people need to watch him still play golf for as long as he can. Uh, but I think our days of seeing Tiger Woods play PGA-type professional golf, I'm sorry, guys. I don't want to be, like I said, I don't want to be the black cloud here, but I don't see it. I think I think he's done. Woody's going to be the black cloud. I'll give you guys a silver lining to all of this. Tiger Woods has now played five events since the accident. All elite fields. He's made the cut in four of those events. Rory McIlroy in those five events only made four out of five cuts. Scotty Scheffler, four cuts. Matty Fitz, four cuts. Patrick Cantlay, four cuts. Max Homa, four cuts. Xander Shoffley, four cuts. He actually has more cuts made than Jordan Spieth in those five events, guys. I just think we need to see Tiger Woods get some solid weather on the weekend and possibly we might see one more time Tiger put himself into contention. We even heard Jason Day talk about this week. I think he probably let it slip in his press conference that the reason why Tiger withdrew after making the cut at Southern Hills was because he had a screw in his foot protruding from his skin, guys. Tiger is one of the most unbelievable talents of our generation but he's also mentally stronger than anybody we've ever seen in the history of sports to be able to deal with all of this he just needs to be able uh, to have a weekend where he doesn't have to deal with high winds and rain t-dub mentioned the shot he hit in the water on 16 you know on let's see that was on saturday morning guys i mean tiger I don't care whether he was uh, completely healthy or not, right? I mean, that that was horrible weather at that point, right before they called the day for, for a weather delay. And I just think that if you are Tiger Woods, you have to look at a forecast throughout the week, and I don't think you're going to have a chance to win if it's cold or rainy on the weekend. And we might start seeing Tiger, uh, you know, kind of, base his schedule off that stuff, T-Dub, because it's been really bad luck for Tiger over the past year. Well, let's just look at his, his majors uh, since he's come back from this injury. Last year, you mentioned it at the Masters Saturday. We had the, the bad weather. Not as bad as this year, but but still fairly bad. He uh, he didn't play the U.S. Open last year. We know what happened Saturday at the PGA Championship. That was some of the coldest weather I've, I've seen in quite some time. And whenever it was scorching hot just a few days before, and then all of a sudden it gets so cold. And so, yeah, that definitely hit her tiger. And then St. Andrews, it wasn't miserably cold, but it was still a little chilly. I mean, they were still having to wear long sleeve shirts and all that. So I, I definitely think that his best chance 
is that LA Country Club. You would think that L- Los Angeles in June would be fairly warm. And I agree with Woody. I, I don't expect him to play the PJ Championship. He doesn't have a very good record at Oak Hill. He finished 40th there in 2013. And then in 2003, he didn't play very good either. That's when Sean McKeel won there as well. So, no, I don't expect him to play there because I do expect him to play in L.A. since he's from California. I expect him to play Hoylake because that's where he won in 2006. So, uh, hopefully hopefully Woody's not right on this, but there is a part of me that wants to wants to doubt him. But I, but I did doubt him even before his last comeback when he won the 2019 Masters. So, there's a part of me that doesn't. But I do agree with Woody on one thing. There was a point in my life where I never in, could have dreamed that Tiger would play the Champions Tour, but all the things that he's talked about and him wanting to seem like reunite with some of his uh, older buddies, because even when he came out on the PJ Tour, he always talked about those older guys and how he looked up to them, and so I think he wants to get out there and kind of hack it around with them, so something I thought five years ago, ten years ago, I would have never thought possible, I think is a possibility, I think it'd be really good, because if he does get a cart, Woody, I think he's going to play some damn good golf. Woody, one thing that I just thought of is the two major championship winners we've seen at Oak Hill recently, you could almost go back to what was it, 89 at Oak Hill. I mean, we've seen Curtis Strange, we've seen Sean McKeel, and then we saw Jason Duffner all win at Oak Hill, all lower uh, ranked guy, or at least Sean McKeel and Jason Duffner were lower ranked guys, and then and then Curtis Strange obviously didn't hit it as far as everyone else, and the Bombers didn't necessarily have a huge advantage. I feel like just golf course wise, it might be a good course for older types. Well, it, it could be if the weather was good, but that's what I worry about is body from the weather. Uh, the reason why you see those names like Duffner and McKeel, uh, the rough is so brutal at this point. If you don't hit the ball in the fairway, I'm going to tell you what, you, you, if you don't have a weed eater along with you, you might as well pick the same way because you cannot get out of this rough. This rough is the thickest, gnarliest, just ugly rough. So um, I think that's why you see those other guys uh, have won. Curtis Strange was a great driver of the golf ball. So, um, and it's long enough, Sam, that even if you bomb it, if you're in that hay, you, you can't get the golf ball in the green. You just can't. Yeah, so my point was basically saying Tiger could go around that course and not necessarily have a disadvantage, um, you know, to any of the other younger guys, healthier guys on the PGA Tour. But you're exactly right about the weather coming up at Oak Hill. We'll get more into that uh, as we get closer to the PGA, guys. Um, But let me go back to what I was talking about uh, when I mentioned Tiger Woods. So on that Saturday morning... I couldn't see anything, and so we were basically following the back nine to see Tiger Woods with a little bit less galleries since all the leaders were on the front nine, uh, and Taylor Gooch, that was a good move. Enjoyed seeing those guys one more time uh, for uh, excuse me, for the week, and then I, I catch Brooks Kepka, John Rahm, and Sam Bennett on number six, and you just couldn't see anything, guys. You had to wait forever because of all uh, – wait forever as a, as a spectator um, because of all the, the umbrellas surrounding the greens. And so on number seven, I told my mom, I said, I know this sounds crazy, but this is miserable, and I have to see the shots because I'm doing a report later. I need to go home and be able to see some of these shots – And then as we were walking back to the clubhouse, we had to walk up seven. I saw the guys on seven, uh, the superintendents out there for Augusta National out there with the squeegees and all of that stuff on seven. I'm going, if seven green 
guys has standing water, these guys are not going to be out here for very much longer. And guess what? About halfway uh, you know, through our walk to the car, they called the tournament for the day on Saturday, guys. Um, what were your thoughts about that Saturday morning? Because, yes, it was terrible, terrible weather, but it could have been even worse on Friday. What did it look like on TV? And I feel like if they would have had to keep playing in that weather, uh, you might be looking at Brooks Kepka wearing the green jacket right now, T-Dub. For probably the last 45 minutes that they played, I couldn't believe they were still going. I mean, you could see standing water on a vast majority of the holes. And you mentioned number seven. Seven's on a pretty high piece of the property and relative yep. to a lot of the other greens out there. So that was that was a sign to me where it was like, and a lot of that standing water wasn't even necessarily in the low areas on the green. It was some of the other ones. So I was like, man, this, this is going to get pretty serious. And the reason I thought they were able to play so long was because of the sub-air system, right? They could drain out those greens a little bit, but that range is coming down so hard. There's only so much that the uh, that the tubes and that sub-air would be able to drain out. And so, yeah, this thing got to a point to where it was just too much. And you could see it as well, I think, as the play was really not good. And like I said, it was fairly interesting, too, because someone like John Rom came back out Saturday morning and played, what, he had to play five or six more holes, and then he played seven. Someone like Kepka, who was already done on Friday afternoon, a lot of those guys, they come out and they only played uh, seven holes for the day. So it was a tale of two different stories between well, guys who had to finish that next morning. T-Dub, let's talk about that John Rom coming back out on Sunday after that because obviously we had the two-shot swing. I got to get your thoughts on that. But I felt like... The reason why I said that Brooks Kepka might be wearing the green jacket if it hadn't quite rained so much to where there was standing water is because I feel like that's when the golf tournament completely got flipped on its head. John Rahm had the two-shot swing to start Sunday morning on that seventh green and then hits his drive into the bunker on eight, and it bounces out of the bunker. That saved him a shot. Hit his drive way right on nine, clanks off a tree and bounces straight back left to where he has a shot to get it in the greenside bunker, gets that up and down, makes a great putt, T-Dub. We get to 11, he hooks an iron shot or draws an iron shot into 11, lands on the left side of 11, which we know is a big no-no, and it bounces straight somehow, and then on 12, he hits it in the bushes in the back and it comes back down out. I know that the final round, there was no luck involved. It was completely rock solid from Brooks Kepka. but what did you see? I felt like the golf tournament was decided uh, really on Sunday morning when they continued that second round after the rain delay on Saturday, and Brooks and 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 John Rom got a, a few fortunate uh, breaks there to start that round and kind of settle in, and then we really did see John Rom settle in uh, to not only that round but the final round as well on Sunday. I think Woody put it best that uh, had a little bit of a sevy on uh, on Rom's side. I definitely think that was in play, but. I think Kepka got some good breaks as well, right? Obviously, I think everyone's going to look at uh, 15 as well, and there were some other times where his ball was a little bit off. But, yes, I do think Rom definitely got more breaks there. And, and yes, maybe the draw had a little bit of something to do with that. But you talk about Sunday morning when they come back out, and uh, it seemed like Kepka and Rom could have been able to put a little bit more separation between them, but they both shot 38 on the back nine, which allowed Victor Hovland to come back and get a little bit more position. And Cantley actually had a little bit of an outside chance to make a move as well. So uh, I, I think that, that – in all honesty, both of them played pretty subpar whenever they first came out Sunday morning, and uh, it seemed like, uh, Woody, that Ron was able to, to actually fix a few things. In particular, he mentioned his fade. I definitely noticed that Saturday morning, or that Sunday morning, he was fading it, definitely overfading it, and Sam mentioned that he was able to control the miss to the right as opposed to the left, and I think that's why he was avoiding some of the bigger numbers 
out there, but he definitely made some adjustments between um, that, that morning golf compared to the afternoon golf. Did you see anything in particular that may have improved in Rom's game? Oh, I, I think you're right. I think all you guys are right. I, I had a funny tidbit for you guys on that Saturday when it got rained out because I know there's some listeners out there like me that, that my, my beautiful, uh, I love her to death, my wife, decided that that Saturday afternoon we were going to have six grandkids over to do an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> what do you think about that, that Woody? To, 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 to say that I was a little disappointed in that that decision was an understatement, and I, I even I even mentioned to my wife in a very nice way. I said, "Now, babe, I'm going to have a chair on the back porch while I'm cooking pizzas for everybody. I've got my cooler beer, I got my cigars stacked out there, and I'm going to watch golf." <laughs> Okay, and I know you're going to get pissed off at me, but you're going to just have to get over you're it. Gonna, you should have told and me you're going to watch golf in, in Jesus' nah, name. I, I, that's what I said, and <laughs> and you know what? I I did. I got to watch it for 15 whole minutes, and they rang that sucker out, <laughs> and she came out, and she goes, I told you never to use God's name in vain, and so I punished you today. So now you get those <laughs> eggs put out there, and you take care of everything. So – I thought you guys would like that because <laughs> I was so mad. I said, what? Easter egg hunt? What? You know, and I'm thinking, oh, man. okay, now, Woody, it's your grandkids. Do this. You know, so it worked out. <laughs> it worked out beautifully for John Rum. It worked out beautifully for Karen, my wife. And I guess it worked out good for Woody because I did not have to sleep in the barn down by the house that's exactly right and woody i mean speaking of you know saturday into sunday t-dub talked about the the sunday morning rounds that john rom and brooks kepka had not necessarily separating themselves let's talk a little bit in between those rounds because i watched brooks kepka's full warm-up and you brought this up on the radio show that Brooks, in that warm-up, looked to be starting all of his iron shots a little bit farther left than normal. And if we look at the stats on the weekend, he definitely did not hit his irons as well or even close to as well as he did in the first two rounds. You told me that you thought that he might be getting a little bit too on top of it. I can concur. And when we get into the start of that round, whether it be, you know, the, the left shot off the tee on number one, but then also just he was a little off on holes like number nine and number 12. I mean, it was just little tiny pulls all day from Brooks Kepka. We talked about how John Rahm got got things straightened out in between those rounds or, or later in that round uh, in the third round or on the driving round range but to me Brooks didn't necessarily have his best stuff on that Sunday uh and and what he kind of dive into that a little bit you know again Kepka has not been in the hunt guys for four years in a major that means I mean I'm not talking he hadn't been in the hunt where he wanted to live and stuff like that but he hadn't been in the hunt in the major okay so what I saw on Thursday Friday when he was really just hearing everything he was a little more shallow uh, and i call that all the time i felt like his club the plane of his club was a little shallow his entry into the golf ball was a little shallow which was his patented little phase you know what i mean it was really good really good yep then on that day it just looked like it was transitioning he was a little bit steeper and a little bit more shut 
okay? And it's hard to, to, to explain it. I, I wish I had a teleprompter. I could show our viewers exactly what I was talking about. But you and T-Dub said it best. You guys, those greens look big, but where you're trying to land the golf ball, four, five, six feet can make all the difference in the world. And you called it nine. He missed that by about five feet. If he hits it five feet further to the right, it feeds right down to the hole. Twelve, he pulled and hit it long, okay? All the shots I saw him hit on that day, seven the same way. He missed the mound by about five feet. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but it got it's huge. But every shot he missed on Sunday was a pull. And he just didn't have the game. He was not there. I'm sorry, he just was not on that day. Well, and just, just to put it into perspective, Sam mentioned on the weekend how he hit his iron so bad in the analytics. Stanley backed that up. On the third round, he lost almost two shots approach, and he lost shots in the final round. And so the first two rounds, he was averaging – uh, gaining more than four shots of first degree is one of the best uh, opening stretches of irons I had seen in a major, maybe in maybe ever. And I, I think that what's very interesting is uh, Woody brought it up best whenever he said that, that he hadn't been under the gun of a major. And I think that really, you really st- showed that because what Kepka talked about, they asked him, okay, well, you're healthy now. What does that mean? And he's like, well, now I can load back onto my right side because before he was mentioning he, had, he was doing more of a stack and tilt swing. And I think what happened was was that he had been so used for the last two years of doing that that sack and tilt sort of – it obviously wasn't that extreme, but that's what he said it felt like. And I think that's what he kind of got to more as the pressure went on. Uh, right, Sam? Because it seemed like, that, as you said, he's staying more on top of it and he's hitting these pulls and just seemed like – I don't know if it was his leg maybe being still hurt. I don't think that was the case. I just think it was more just being under the gun and having the pressure brought out some old tendencies that he hasn't fully been able to get over yet. No, you're exactly right. And I even thought watching that warm up that he was intentionally aiming a little bit left. No, because by the way, on this range out at Augusta National, in between the third and fourth round on Sunday, there was a big right to left wind. And so I thought that he might just be, you know, setting up for a fade and it's not fading. And my dad goes, man, it looks like he's kind of pulling those a little bit. And he was exactly right because I thought that maybe he was doing it intentionally. But T-Dub, when you look at those shots that he hit and what he laid them out on on seven and on uh, nine and on 12, it was all just little pulls. And, and I think that Woody might be correct in that. He hasn't been under the gun. Maybe his transition got a little bit quicker. Um, and that's why this is one of the reasons why I don't necessarily consider what Brooks Kepka did on Sunday a giant choke. It's because the misses that Brooks had on Sunday were very minute, but they were accentuated by what John Rom was doing. John Rom didn't do anything special. Obviously, he had the birdie at three, uh, didn't even birdie two. He had John Rom had the birdie at three and then the birdie at eight. Um, but and by the way, Brooks missed left with the driver on eight as well. Um, but just little minute mistakes that John Rom took advantage of because he was so rock solid. I'll take you back to number four earlier on in that round. I was right there. Brooks Kepka hit a beautiful iron shot right at the pin, and it comes up short. He had the wrong number on number four, and that costs him one or two shots on the field on that one, guys. And so it. And then John Rom, his only bogey he made was on number nine, and like we talked about, if if Brooks Kepka is 
five, not even five feet to the right on nine, he's going to have a short putt for birdie on nine, knowing how big that slope is, you know, coming back down towards the flagstick. And so I just felt like John Rahm's insanely solid final round kept putting pressure on Brooks Kepka to where maybe he did have that you know, quicker transition throughout the day and never really, John Rahm never really allowed Brooks Kepka T-Dub to kind of settle into that round a little bit. I agree. I, I don't think it was a choke. I equated it to, they were in different styles, I'll give it that, but I think on an equal level, I equated it to what Rory did at last year's Open Championship. I didn't think it was a choke. It just, he didn't play very solid golf. I didn't see, it wasn't like a horrible, you know, Scotty Sheffield four-putt double bogey whenever you have a one-shot lead or something like that. Like, it wasn't, that bad at all but he did bogey both the, the par threes on the front and you mentioned four four was a huge hole in my opinion because rom did what you're supposed to do there i i was talking with colby yesterday when we played in a, a tuesday night scramble at the green which we won by the way but i uh, don't want to brag too much um whenever it, on number four if you you have to go left of that flag you have to put it into the little peninsula that's right there you have to do it every time and people were just aiming at that flag constantly they were either landing short in the bunker like Kepka did they're landing right by the hole and going off the back of the green. It made no sense to me. And, and Rom hit one of the best shots that I've seen because it's a 240-yard hole. And whenever you get all the way back on that tee box, it's extremely narrow. And at that point, Rom had birdie three to already get back a one-up on the day on Kepka, and then a, a, a one-shot swing there. And then Rom took his lead on the sixth hole, and then uh, Kepka bogeyed six as well. So uh, it seemed like and, to me, Woody, right that... Pause right there, uh, T-Dub. Pause right there on six, because I felt like six played extremely hard in that final round because of the wind direction. Basically, the wind was coming out of the northeast, which is into number six, and I felt like with the elevation change being so downhill on six, those guys know they can't miss long on six, but they were missing long because they were factoring in the wind and, and expecting the wind to kind of hit those those balls and and I felt like that was another point where Brooks could have kind of settled into the round but he missed long and, and that was another point right there absolutely and we mentioned earlier in the in the first part just how narrow that section is where that pin is so I mean I could not have imagined having to hit that shot in that situation but Ron Baum had a great up and down there made a great par and uh, as you mentioned that's where Kepka bogey so he took the one shot lead and then also on five as well that's one thing that Kepka really starting the uh, in the morning play not being able to take advantage of the par fives in the in Sunday morning, and then he also didn't do it on the front nine uh, of the Sunday afternoon. So something that he had done so well in the second round, Woody taking advantage of the par fives, all of a sudden alluded to me pardon on uh, on in, essentially the entire time on after Sunday, and that's something that he really needed to take advantage of. He ended up doing it on the back nine, but at that point it was just too little, too late. I find it interesting you alluded to his knee that that injury, and this is something I can relate to in a big way, guys. In 1993, I fractured my patella, uh, which is a terrible knee injury from a golfer standpoint, on my right leg, okay? Literally, as I look back today, it took me off the tour because that knee did not want to heal. And I did exactly what he had been doing, what Kepka had been doing. I kind of worked more of a sack on my left side. And I never really gave my knee enough time to heal. And I probably didn't rehab it near like these guys are. So let me tell you something, guys. That injury, we don't talk about it enough, but it was huge for Brooks Kepka. That's where his confidence went. That's why he went down the toilet there for a while. And when he got under the gun, those old bad habits he'd been doing while he was injured 
I think, came back a little bit. Now, did he learn from it? Sure he did, because what he did learn is this knee he's got now. I think it's pretty healthy, gentlemen. I really do, because I don't think if it was still giving him fits, he would have been able to be leading the Masters through almost 54 holes, or through 54 holes. So, saying that, what I mean by this is Kepka didn't choke. I really don't think he did. I think Rom played a phenomenal surgical round. We said that on the radio show. Kepka just didn't quite have it. But if I'm the other tour players and I'm watching what Kepka was able to do, uh, beware of him at Oak Hill. I think he'll play really good at Oak Hill. And I think he'll play LA Country Club really good. I don't know about the British Open, but those two, I think, better look out for Kepka. Definitely look out for Kepka. Um, Woody, you mentioned Rom's surgical round. Uh, you know, we talked about the front nine, obviously got the birdie on eight, then the bogey on nine. But after number nine, it was just so rock solid what you have to do to win the golf tournament. Nothing special, but let's let's break this down, T-Dub. I mean, the second shot into number 10, absolutely beautiful for John Rom. No problems there. Stays away from the water on 11, makes par on 11, hits it right over the tongue of the bunker on 12. Exactly what Tiger said that you have to do to win the golf tournament, especially when you're holding a lead. Birdies number 13 after, by the way, I, I thought Brooks kind of got a bad break staying up on that hill on 13, and 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 Rom hit his second shot even a little bit closer and, and didn't catch the bunker and it didn't catch the hill. That was just the little breaks that John Rom was getting throughout the day, but he makes birdie at 13, and then the unbelievable shot at 14 uh, that led to a birdie, and then pars the last four holes, guys. And John Rahm, I mean, like I said, there's no specific shot that you can really point to in that final round other than the fact that he was just so rock solid. And this is the same guy, guys, that earlier on in his career, we were saying this guy might not be able to win as many majors because of his attitude and because of how he might turn his scorecard into a roller coaster. And it was the exact opposite of that. Boring golf, T-Dub, is winning golf. And we saw that from John Rahm. John Rahm looked like the best player in the world. That's exactly what you have to do to win the Masters. Well, he definitely did. And if I'm going to look at any shot in particular, I'm going to look at the shot on 14. Hit it over to the right, kind of in the trees. That hit a low little fade in there. Hit it up to what? Maybe two feet or so, three feet. Just had a little bit of a tap in. That was an absolute miraculous shot. And that's where uh, Kepka made a, a bogey on 14. He actually ended up making a birdie on 13 as well, just like Rom did, but then gave it back on 14. At that point, he kind of knew that it was over. And then, as you mentioned, there's even more great shots coming in. Hit the good shot in there on 16. In there on the hole. Actually got a read from Kepka as well. Um, after he made a putt, but then still wasn't able to make it in. But then did get a little bit of a break off of the tee on 18, where uh, he, he did hit the trees to the left and pop back out <laughs> in the middle of fairway to go to your point of uh, getting John a little few it, more breaks. Which, John Rom said he had to be the only guy in the history of the Masters not to reach the fairway uh, on the 72nd hole. Well, you, you don't see provisional balls hit very often in Augusta National. You don't see him hit on 18 very often. So that was a big experience, especially in the final group. Of the, of the tournament, and, and as you mentioned, he gained 2.23 shots approach in the final round. I mean, that's really what did it. I mean, just the, the absolute rock-solid uh, iron play. And then off the tee, gaining more than a full shot as well. Didn't lose strokes in any, any single category. So, uh, I mean, Ron just a, a rival champion, as you said. He's, he's the best. Uh, I think he's the best currently in the world. Now, he keeps flip-flopping between him and him and Scheffler. Seems like, seems like Rory has kind of set himself 
outside of those top two, at least at this point. And he, he just played so extremely well. And uh, this isn't the last time that we're going to see John Rahm at the top of the leaderboard. I think he's got many, many, many more majors ahead of him. Would he kind of break down some of those shots that John Rahm made look so easy and so boring on that back nine? Uh, I mentioned a couple of them, but you've played at Augusta National. I mean, break those down and tell the people how unreal some of those shots actually were under that kind of pressure. Well, when we were talking on the radio show, if you're if you're not a real golf golfer, Rahm wasn't exciting. But if you are a real golfer, and you knew his discipline that he was showing, like leaving the ball below the hole on 10. He had only like a 9-iron, maybe an 8-iron on 11, but he didn't shoot at that pin. He left it below and right. He hit it exactly where he was supposed to be on 12, just like he said. He didn't go at that pin whatsoever. The only thing he did that was a little bit ballsy, in my opinion, it was drawing it on 13. And that shows you. And I didn't see that tee shot because I was out there on the course. Woody, tell me what that shot was like off the tee. Oh, man. I mean, you know, John Rahm has been hitting a 10, 15-yard fade every driver. He gets up back there on that new tee on 13, and he turned that driver right to left around that corner. And when he did that, Sam, I'm sitting there watching it at home. I said, this golf tournament's over. And uh, my, my, my stepson was sitting next to me. He said, really? And I said, yeah, it's over. And he goes, well, you never know. And I said, no, trust me, it's over. <laughs> if he can stand back there with that kind of confidence to turn it around that corner when he's been hitting nothing but fades for almost uh, 24 hours, and then he does that, I said, it's over. And he goes, wow, I, I didn't I never would have thought of that. I never see that kind of stuff. I said, yeah, well, I do, because I, I wouldn't have the balls to do that, okay? So he knew he had it on a string. He dubbed right. The one time it looked like he might get no problem was 14. That was not as easy a shot as he made it look. Not at but all. He landed that ball. He landed that ball perfectly onto that green where he had to to feed it up and then let it feed back down. You know what the ironic part about 14 is, is that I felt like even though Brooks was a little bit farther in the trees, they had kind of similar shots from over there. And I thought that Brooks hit about as good of a shot that you could hit. I was standing next to a guy that, I mean, I've never met in my life. I go, that's about as good as you can do. And then John Rahm hits it up there, you know, stone dead. Kick away. Yeah, almost kick away. So, you know, the only time you saw Rom, I think he lost a little bit of concentration on 18 where he hit a little bit of a pull hook or a snap hook that hits the trees and comes back. But he got himself right back. If you notice, he got right back into the game. He got right back into his, uh, I, I got to finish this golf tournament, laid it up perfectly, knocked it in there and makes par. So there was nothing he did. The only thing I saw that if you could call it a mistake was when he sucked it off the front of number nine and made a bogey there. But other than that, he was spot on. What he reminded me of was the time Nick Faldo took Greg Norman apart on that same Sunday afternoon. Nick Faldo was just surgical, fairway, green, perfect place to put the ball. Went out and shot five under. Greg Norman, as we know, ended up shooting, what, six over, five over, whatever it was. Uh, And and he just blew right by him. Those two rounds stick in my my thoughts, Rom, he was absolutely mature, spot on. Look out. If this guy doesn't win another major, you could bust me. 
he's going to have a boatload of them. <laughs> no doubt about it. We'll get to how many majors we think John Rahm is going to win here in a minute. Um, but what do you bring up, Greg Norman? Brooks Kepka does join Greg Norman as one of only three players. Now, the other two were Greg Norman, but one of only three uh, guys to be 12 under through the first two rounds of an event uh, and then end up losing the golf tournament. Greg Norman in 1990 uh, and then Greg Norman in 1996, obviously at the Masters, just like Brooks Kepka. But I want to get to some historical facts um, and, and kind of what we think about John Rahm's win this week, T-Dub. John Rahm, and I can't believe this, and John couldn't either, that he became the first European to ever win the U.S. Open and the Masters in their career. That's amazing to me that that has not happened yet. But my point here of bringing this up is that when you look at the major championships that the current quote-unquote maybe next legends of the game that we're watching right now, the number of majors that they have, Rory has four. Brooks has four, Spieth has three, Morikawa has two, JT and DJ have two, Rom has two, Scheffler only has one, but we know the talent that he has. Um, T-Dub, I got to ask you, I mean, the fact that John Rom's game translates from a U.S. Open-style course to the Masters at Augusta National, which are two completely different styles of golf, that makes me think that of those list of guys that I just listed off, Rory, Brooks, Speed, Morikawa, JT, DJ, Scheffler, I think Rom has the best chance to end his career with the most majors out of any of those guys. And that's why on the radio show I said that, and, and maybe I was wrong of saying that right now he's the best Spaniard of all time, but I feel like he's the most talented, I'll put it, Spaniard that we've ever seen in the history of golf. Yes, I definitely think that he has the most potential, for sure, even more than what Sergio had. And he was a wonder boy when it came out. As far as your question, Sam, I mean, I think one thing that we have to get caught up in, and a lot of people do, you'll sit down and you'll have conversations with people, and you'll be like, oh, I think he's going to win. Like, he's got to win a Masters. And you think, oh, well, he's got to win one, too. Then you think, then it's like, they only hand out one Masters a year, and they only have four majors a year. So there's only so many selects you have out, then you're going to have your, you're going to have your Danny Willits win. You're going to have your Padraig Harrington's win three majors. You're going to have your Zach Johnson's win two, your Angel Cabrera's <laughs> win two. So there's going to be right. some people that just come out of nowhere that there's no way you could prognosticate that, that that was going to happen. And so you look at who will win the most. You, you got to, I mean, you look at Rory, right? He has four, but he hadn't won one in almost a decade. And then Tom is absolutely on fire. Maybe it's just recency bias because he's been played so well this week. But I, I would have to go with Rom there. Even though Rory does have two, there's a part of me that still wants to lean there. You think he's got to get it figured out. And then potentially, if he can just get the fifth one, he could rattle off six, seven, and maybe potentially uh, get to eight. I mean, he does have that much talent. But then, like, Morikawa is an extreme good ball striker. If he can just get his putter figured out, and he's still really young, he has a chance. Other guys like uh, Spieth and JT, I'm, I'm not extremely high on them. I think JT has a lot more talent. And Spieth is it, still going for the career grand slam, which is something – that could easily be done. Dustin Johnson, he may win one more, one potentially two more if he just gets really, really hot. But still, I don't think that he would ever get more than, than four like Rory and Kepka have. And then Kepka, he just keeps playing solidly in the top ten as well. So I think it's an extremely great question. And, and by so the I way, right so there on did, Kepka, real quick, on Kepka, if he would have won this week, he would have been playing the British Open for the Grand Slam just like Rory did this week for the Grand Slam at the Masters. And then wouldn't that have been crazy? Every tournament, 
we would have someone competing for it because Speed would be going for it at the PGA and Phil would be going for it at the U.S. Open. So, I, I mean, that just would have added. That. That's a great point. That would have added some excellent drama to it. And uh, I don't know, Woody, as far as that question goes, I guess just because the potential is so high on Rom, because I think he could rattle off and get up to eight or ten if he's extremely, extremely focused and doesn't get so caught up and just want to raise his family, which I do see that could be a thing uh, down the road. But uh, just on the talent, I'd probably go wrong. But uh, I guess a more better question is the two guys that have four, Rory or Kepka, who would you go with most? And Kepka looks extremely solid, but still, there's still a part of me that thinks Rory's going to get it figured out, and I go with Rory out of those. We'll get two. to Rory in a second, but out of those guys, Woody, who do you like to have the most majors? Rory, Brooks, Speed, Morikawa, JT, DJ, Scheffler, and obviously Rom. Well, I think it goes Rom Kepka if I was going to say that. And, and T-Dub, remember something. There was a guy by the name of Nicholas that really was dedicated to his family as well as his golf, and he won 18. And so, finished second uh, in 19 of them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's a different age, Woody. It is a different yeah. age. <laughs> I understand, but I'm not sure they're going to have to worry about it, uh, an Easter egg hunt on the Saturday of the Masters. I think they're going to be focused, okay? <laughs> so, uh, uh, I've I, but those guys are really, and this is just, you know, this, where's my dartboard? I would tell you, I look at Kepka and I look at Rom of being the guys that I think will win the most majors in the next 10 years of that group you just talked about. And let's dial it back to Kepka one more time here, guys, because I feel like a lot was said about Brooks Kepka's game over the past I don't know, year and a half, and then obviously when he transitioned to live, everyone was looking at the negative side of Kepka. Guys, this week he looked like the same Brooks Kepka, at least for the most part of the golf tournament, to where I feel like this is the same guy that shows up for big events. And guys, I mean, I didn't see anything in that final round that made me think, oh, this guy just can only play 54 holes. By the way, if you think that Dustin Johnson or Cam Smith or any of those live guys can only play 54 holes, you're kidding yourself because that is the the dumbest thing that I have heard circulating around on Twitter over this past week. Brooks Kepka is back, and the reason why he's back is he's finally healthy again, T-Dub. Oh, very true. I mean, that's 100% true. And, I mean, you just look at how he plays. In the majors, I mean, what is this? His uh, This was his eighth top two in a major. He has four wins and two other seconds. And then he has he has four top fours, and then he has a fifth in there as well. And then he has two sixths and a seventh. So, I mean, he, he's just been absolutely unbelievable in the majors. And there's some definite validity to what Woody, or to what Woody was saying for sure. I mean, Kepka's still only 33 years old. or he, He's actually 32. He'll be 33 next month. And so... No, I mean, if he stays healthy like this and uh, wants to stay focused, which I think from the Netflix series, everyone sees that he is still motivated, that he, he could definitely rattle off a few more. And it seems like he's always going to be in contention because for whatever reason, he just peaks right around these times. And uh, it's something that, you know, usually it's the opposite of that, right? You think you could play good in the smaller events, but you don't really come up for the majors. And he's kind of uh, the opposite side of that. And so it's uh, it's cool to see. And uh, he's he still already has four. It's still crazy to think that he just went on such a, a toward run over that stretch, but uh, he's definitely got, I think he's got one or two more in him for sure. There, a couple weeks ago, and, and for a long time, I didn't think he'd ever win another major again, but that was also because I didn't realize how seriously he was hurt, and it seems like he's healthy now. So as long as he can stay healthy, he's going to be a contender in a lot of majors just like Roman. Like I said, that that knee, that was a bigger injury than I, any of us know, and and if he's healthy, and I think he is, look, at, I think Kepka's going to surprise us. I really do. And, and Sam, it's so spot on. Any moral 
and I'm going to call you a moron, okay? If you want to argue that these guys can't play more than 54 holes, don't don't even go there, okay? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. It, it really is the stupidest thing. And Phil Mickelson put that little argument to bed, guys. We got to talk about Phil and Speeth in that final round. Phil Mickelson had the crowd at Augusta National electric. And let me explain what I mean by this, T-Dub. In that final round, obviously, there's no phones out at Augusta National. And so, the, the obviously, the play was pretty slow as well. So, what the fans are doing in between the shots is looking at that leaderboard and seeing what numbers go up and change on the non-electronic leaderboards at Augusta National. And the fans were absolutely loving every single birdie that was put up on that leaderboard for Phil Mickelson and every single birdie that was put up on that leaderboard for Jordan Spieth. I thought that this Sunday was so great for golf watching those two guys vault themselves up into the top five of this golf tournament. I didn't see any shots from Spieth or or uh, Phil Mickelson because I was out on the course. But T-Dub, what did you see, number one, from Jordan Spieth? Uh, and then we'll get to Phil Mickelson as well here in a second. I mean, they were just absolutely balling. I mean, it was crazy. They were just kind of feeding off of each other. And I, I don't have it exactly added up what they would have done, but they would have had a really, really good best ball going on between the two because uh, for exa- is would have been their best ball. But that that is just absolutely unbelievable. That's a fourteen under right there. And so the reason for that is like for example, Phil's only bogey was on hole five. Well, Speed birdied that hole, and then for and then the next hole, Speed bogeyed six. Well, Phil birdied six. So I mean, it just made up for it in so many areas. And yeah, they just kept feeding off each other. It's pretty interesting. Speed uh, Speed shot six hundred sixty six had nine birdies, but he also had uh, three bogeys in there as well. So uh, if he could have just straightened out the par fives on the, or the, I'm sorry, the par threes on the front nine, then he would have had a lot better chance. And then, uh, like he's done a couple of times, in all honesty, he's had, uh, I can't remember what year it was, I think it was 2018, the Patrick Reed year, he had a really, really good final round going. And then did, did the same thing on 18, hit it straight into the trees left and ended up making a, a bogey there to cost himself a decent amount of money because uh, he would have finished tied two. If not, but, but going on to Phil Mickelson, I mean, just to put it in perspective, on, on number 12 when he birdied, he birdied five of his last seven holes. At that point, he was only three under. If he would have finished three under, that would have been tied 14th. So essentially, he was, in, he was in 15th place going into that stretch. And then just rounded it off. The shot he hit into 17 was beautiful. I thought he was going to hold it. How the shot didn't go in still amazes me. And then the clutch birdie on 18 was great. It is really good. I think Phil really needed this to rejuvenate his career because everything that's happened in the last year, you can definitely tell whenever he's talked to the media a few times since he's played good, he, he, he sounds more pepped up. He, he was definitely excited. He's motivated. And it's really good to see because even after all the stuff that's happened, he's one of the greatest of all time, in my opinion, a top 10 player of all time. And uh, he deserves to be recognized more than he has in the last year. And hopefully he can show a little bit of uh, highlights in a couple of the majors coming up or continually at Augusta because he is what, 52 years old now. So, uh, he is pretty old. Um, but at the same time, it was just great to see him make a run like that. And had Ron faltered at all at any stretch, it would have been lovely to see Phil Mickelson get the green jacket. I mean, that just would have been absolutely magnificent. But for him to get second, make over, what was it, $2 million, something like that, absolutely beautiful. And again, our thank you to Jim Woodward. He had to go attend to a personal matter. He will be back with us uh, next week. But, Tita, we were talking about Phil Mickelson and – 
you know, kind of how his game translates at this older age. And the thing that I see from Phil Mickelson that's similar to Freddie Couples that we saw this week make the cut at 63 years old, I think. And then obviously different swings we've seen in the past, a little longer swings like a VJ Singh uh, or a Tom Watson, guys that have had success uh, over the age of 50. The thing that I see that is similar, T-Dub, and I'll see if you agree, it's the longer swings seem to have more longevity in professional golf, right? Yes, I, I absolutely agree 100%. You know, you look at Phil's swing, someone like Freddie Couples just mentioned, who was absolutely flushing it on the range on Wednesday. Should have picked him in some DraftKings pools to make the cut, but I was like, man, there's no way someone his age can make the cut just from how long Augusta National is. But, but yes, he ended up doing it. He was playing great, and like you said, the swing, some swings can stand the test of time. VJ Singh's the same way. Tom Watson, not as long of a swing, but still pretty close to, to being, it's more uh, longer at least. So Jack Nicholas went way back and he played long into his career. So yeah, I think there's some validity to it. Maybe, Why maybe we shouldn't say long. Maybe we should say non-violent swings. You know what I mean? It's not like a, a John Rahm or a Bryson DeChambeau or, you know, it, it, it's just the non-violent swings that seem to have the longevity, right? Yeah, it's the, you don't just, hack at it right and there's not a whole lot of torque there's not a you know a ricky fowler joaquin neiman type twist on the back even though someone like freddie who has had a lot of back issues that's why he's dealt with a lot of the putter changes that he has but yeah he's still been able to get that healed up and go good but yeah someone like vj singh who's been an absolute workaholic he's got a very very long phone swing ernie yells played pretty good into his late 40s so uh so yeah there's definitely some validity to that maybe it's just because it keeps you more limber and you have to uh you know your muscles are just not as tight as they are, maybe there's something to that. I don't know. There's, but there's definitely a trend there that has been set. Um, why maybe next week on Woody we can get his full opinion on it. But, uh, but yeah, I think that there is. Uh, there's got to be something to that, right, Sam? And I think it just has to do with just the muscles and maybe something you just can't really see. No, there definitely has to be something to that. And let me go ahead and give you my takeaways from this Masters at Augusta National. My number one takeaway is that John Rahm is the best player in the world. And by best, I mean most talented when he is on top of his game. No one in the world is beating John Rahm. And number two, my second biggest takeaway, T-Dub, is that the official world golf ranking is completely broken. We had... Phil Mickelson ranked 425 in the world, finished second in the golf tournament. We had Brooks Kepka finished second in the golf tournament as well, ranked 118 in the world. We had Patrick Reed finish tied for fourth, ranked 70th in the world, T-Dub. That is my second biggest takeaway, that that is completely broken. And we heard the Masters and Fred Ridley earlier on this week say that they are keeping the same criteria for next year, saying that they will use official World Golf Ranking. I think a lot of people have to remember that Fred Ridley is on the board for official World Golf Ranking. I think that that needs to be looked into heavily because it will freeze out guys like a Joaquin Neiman out of major championships, which is ridiculous. It'll freeze out guys like a Taylor Gooch out of majors, which is ridiculous because he was ranked in the top 30 in the world when he left for live, and he was in the top 10 on the FedEx Cup when he left for live. That's my second biggest takeaway. And then my third biggest takeaway, T-Dub, is live finishes with three guys in the top Four at the Masters, the biggest golf tournament in the world. They had three guys in the top four 
I think we finally this week, T-Dub, put to bed this notion, this false notion that live is an exhibition. What are your thoughts on my three takeaways from this Masters? That's how I'll remember it. I think you're you're right on your first part for sure about Ron being the best whenever he's on. I mean, because every aspect of his game is so rock solid. The driver and the irons we've already alluded to. But his wedge game is just solid. That little shot he hit in 18, I thought he was going to do what Tiger did in 19, just blare it where, way past the hole and just take it down and make a bogey, maybe even double and just coast on in to win. But no, he just threw it right over the top of the bunker, left it below the hole, had a nice little easy par putt. So, uh, I mean, I just think he's in such control of his game whenever he's on. Someone like, you look at the all-time rankings, right, when they've been playing their best. Rom's uh, at his highest average is a 2.87 analytically. Rory was a 2.73. And Scotty's at a 2.61. So, and all those uh, analytics occurred this year. So, it's pretty crazy that all three of those played their best golf they've ever played in their life at this point. So, uh, so yeah, I definitely think that it's somewhere in that order um, when it comes to that. Um, as far as your second point, that's you're even more right on that point than anything. The OWGR is, is an absolute joke. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's kind of pretty sad because I used to look at the I used to look at the OWGR website all the time to see okay well this guy moved the world number one that's cool and this guy moved in the top 50 because that was so important and but no I don't even hardly get on there anymore and so it's uh, it's sad to see that the state of this game you mentioned the players that could be exiled for I mean you tell me that Joaquin Neiman and Taylor Gooch aren't top 50 players in the world I mean just give me an absolute break when it comes to that to that and then live is no the only reason people can have any validity that live is an exhibition is just because they're so staple in a term having to be 72 holes and, and they, they want to throw a shotgun start in there, which I mean, okay, you're just kind of looking at semantics at that point, in my opinion, but no, the, the play of the golf is good. As you saw it here, Bruce Kepka and Phil Nicholson, who really in all honesty, uh, until Kepka won uh, last week in Orlando had not been playing very well at all on live and Phil definitely had not been playing well. He shot at a 65 or something like that in his final round in Orlando, but before that, no, had not been playing very good. Patrick Reed had chosen signs of form and he ended up finishing fourth as well. So, no, it was a good showing for the, for the live guys. And I think they need it in all honesty. Maybe it'll kind of uh, shut up the, uh, the uh, a few naysayers that are still out there. And in all honesty, if uh, if Rom had not won, it would have been obviously better for Liv had Phil. I mean, if you could add a Phil Kepka playoff for Liv, I mean, how absolutely beautiful <laughs> would that have been for them? But, uh, but, but no, I mean, Rom absolutely stole the show. But, no, it was, it was a good week for Liv for sure. And, unfortunately, there were 18 Liv players that played there this year. I think that number – more than likely will be cut close to half next year just because of the ranking system and players who had won on PJ Tour, things like that. So, uh, but no, it, that number will definitely go down. Obviously, the past champions will stay in, so that's good. But, no, hopefully there can be some uh, some change to the system or the criteria to enter the event if we truly want to have the best field that makes Yeah, by the way, Phil Mickelson's career earnings at Augusta National this week surpassed Tiger for the most all-time, 9773317 dollars that Phil has made at Augusta National. Uh, Phil has definitely had just as much success at Augusta uh, maybe than anybody. But yeah, back to the point um, about Liv. We finally see the fact that there's a bunch of hypocrisy going on in the game of golf. Let's talk about Rory McIlroy. Rory was not there on Sunday. Neither was Tiger. Neither was Justin Thomas, T-Dub. And by the way, 
CBS says that Sunday's final round of the Masters was the most watched golf telecast on any network in five years, averaging 12.058 million viewers and up 19% versus last year, T-Dub. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that this narrative that live is bad for golf is completely wrong. Whether you love live or you hate live, you have to admit that the competition and the storyline between them and the PGA tour is clearly good for golf being up 19% from last year. I think it definitely is. And Phil Mickelson playing really good. I think what brought in a lot of those eyeballs and speeds playing good people tune in to see Kepka. I remember walking around even on Wednesday and you hear some people say, they ask about a player and like, oh, was he on full swing or they brought up full swing? And it's like, so like, I know that attracted a lot of people. So the guys that were on there will definitely have their fans as well. So yeah, no, I think it's definitely great. You do have the, uh, the uh, kind of rivalry there, which is something that I've always thought golf was needed. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I started being a guy that rooted, I rooted against Ricky Fowler for a long time because uh, I had me and my friends and we said, okay, well, who's going to be better, Rory or Ricky when they first came out? And I always said Rory and everyone ever said Ricky, so that's why I root against it because it's like you need someone uh, to root against, in my opinion. And at this point, that's, that's kind of what it's turned into for a lot of people. So, no, I think it's great. It's, uh, the, ma- the majors can be a union between the two tours if there, if there is go- ever going to be one. And we can actually have the full-on feels of who will be the best out there. So, no, it's great. And, and as the numbers showed, it was highly viewed and rightfully so because I mean, Rom kind of coasted him, but uh, as Woody mentioned, if you actually understood the type of shots he was hitting on, on those final few holes, it was absolutely beautiful to watch. No doubt about it. And the other notion that was put to bed is that live players can't play in the final round or 72 holes. In holes 55 through 72 at this year's Masters, the live scoring average was 72.63. The non-live scoring average was 73.09. I think that they put to bed any of the notions that it's an exhibition. They can't play 72 holes. They finished with three guys in the top four. They are a force to be reckoned with. And by the way, none of those guys were actually in the top 10 of the live standings. Eight of the top 10 guys in the live standings this year were not in the Masters this year. So we need to get some things figured out in the world of professional golf. Um, T-Dub, another thing, uh, and we'll save Rory for the RBC because he's still in the news. Uh, And I know that a lot of people are probably like, why haven't you talked about Rory? Well, we're saving him for the RBC. I do want to wrap the Masters up with the course changes that we talked about before the tournament. We just gave our takeaways on the actual golf tournament. My takeaways on the changes to 13 and obviously the the semi-new changes to 15 that they did last year I still think we have to wait and see because I felt like that the Masters got a little bit fortunate that there was a northeast wind which made the second shot at 13 downwind and I am of the camp that I want to see fireworks around Amen Corner uh, and I feel like if they continue to use that back tee box we're not going to see as many of those. I, in all honesty, I thought it was a great change. I, I think it worked great. You are a little bit right with the wind for sure, making it on the second shot. And even on the cold days, you weren't able to get past the corner. So, and so, and more people had to lay up. But I just remember back, we brought it up numerous times, the Bubba Watson drive that hit on 13, just being able to take it over that corner. And I want someone like Cameron Young, who hits the ball so high so far. I mean, it's just absolutely gorgeous. But it's like the line that he could take on that hole from the old tee box is stupid. So, no, there had to be 
some change done in my opinion. It's one of the few holes, especially after seeing it, it's maybe the best hole I've ever witnessed with my eyes. And so it's like something had to be done to preserve the integrity of that hole, of any hole in the world, I think should be at play as it should be. Very similar like number 12, right? Woody said that tee box is out in the field. They could easily move that tee box back if they wanted to, but, but they're not going to. So you, there obviously was some hesitation for 13 to move it back, but I just think it's one hole that with the game of golf being changed, it's not even necessarily the distance they added back. You just needed some way to block out being able to take it way extreme over the quarter just from how high these guys can hit it. So overall, I think it's a beautiful change, but you are right in the sense that we're going to need to see it in the next couple of years because if we get some weather that really opposes it, no one can go for 13, I, I think it'll be a little bit worse. But at least people were able to go for 15 this year as well. So that, that hole still didn't play as exciting as I think it usually does. But also at the same time, it's, uh, it's just a consequence of them trying to overreact. So I definitely think that the changes on 13 have been better or at least will be better over the course of time than the changes on 15. No doubt. We'll wait and see uh, how those holes play in future years. One more last takeaway is Sam Bennett would have made $270,000, guys, uh, T-Dub in prize money this week. In the climate of college golf right now, these guys can get NIL deals. Why the hell can't we pay these guys for actually earning the money on the golf course? $270,000 is a lot of money that would have helped Sam Bennett. Unfortunately, since he has an A next to his name, he can't accept the prize money that he earned at Augusta National. I think that's absolutely ridiculous, and we need to look into that in the climate and the, and the fact that these guys are getting NIL deals. It's ridiculous. I've, I've been saying it for years, Sam. I've always thought it was ridiculous, but he is getting some NIL deals, so he is getting a little bit of compensation there. Is it 200 k worth? I'm not exactly sure. But at the same time, you will have your devil's advocates who will say, man, I guess of any tournament where an amateur would not get paid, it would probably be Augusta just because of Bobby Jones and what he meant for amateur golf in the history that they have there. So if any place that I would find it acceptable, it would be there. But I still don't because I think that you earn it, and especially like you mentioned in today's day and age, you earn something, you should get it. And so, yes, yeah, Sam Bennett should have definitely gotten his money i mean it just would have been could you imagine if somehow he won the tournament and couldn't have gotten the three million dollars yeah. i mean what an absolute crime that would no it absolutely would have been uh t-dub let's address the elephant in the room that's rory McElroy. and rory earlier on this week got beat by phil mickelson by nine shots in the opening two rounds rory shot five over and missed the cut at Augusta National. He's been very outspoken, and I thought that this Masters T-Dub set up better for Rory McIlroy than any major championship in the last decade for him to have success. And what does he do? He goes out there and he comes up small again in a major championship. Rory McIlroy misses the cut at Augusta National at five over. And then, T-Dub, let's get into the RBC a little bit here. Rory McIlroy, for the elevated event at Harbortown at the RBC the week after the Masters, has now withdrawn, and the field will now be 143 players. And this is interesting because Rory is the same guy that came out earlier on this year in February and said, and I quote, the best players should be playing in the elevated events because ultimately the PGA Tour needs to build around the best players. That's what will maximize the value of the product, end quote. 
That was back in February, T-Dub. Now we are in the middle of April, not even in the middle of April. Six elevated events into this new format on the PGA Tour, and Rory McIlroy has already not only withdrawn once out of these elevated events, but he's withdrawn twice now out of these elevated events. Obviously withdrawing at the Tournament of Champions in Hawaii and then withdrawing at the RBC. This is a completely weak move by Rory McIlroy, and it just proves T-Dub, that people don't understand the hypocrisy that is going on. Rory McIlroy is getting guaranteed dollars through the TGL. And essentially, Rory McIlroy understands that the players have all of the leverage now on the PGA Tour. Rory says, fine, take away my little percentage out of the PIP. I'm not playing this week because Rory... By the way, all you live haters is doing the exact same thing the live guys are doing. Rory McIlroy is doing what's best for Rory McIlroy. This is insane to me that Rory, after being some great activist for the PGA Tour, is doing something as soft as this, T-Dub. We have to rip him for this. Out of every person who would not play in two elevated events up to this point, I wouldn't have thought it would be Rory. I mean... I mean, like if you're someone like Will Zalatoris who we found out is done for the entire season. Okay, yes, if you have an actual injury, then there's something. But, I mean, everything I've read, Sam, it says the PJ Tour did not disclose an injury related to it and said that unless there is a legitimate medical reason for the withdrawal, he'll, he'll lose the percentage of his PIP money, which, I mean, at the end of the day, does he even if he is getting money for the PJ Tour or not, does he really need that extra with everything he's gotten with Nike and all the money he's made over the course of his career? No, probably not. I mean, you can always use more. More is never enough that situation but but no I, I do feel like just if he hadn't come out with all, saying all the things that he did over the course of the last year no I, I don't think he'd be ripped if it was any other player if it was someone like Cameron Young or something like that you know I wouldn't say anything about it because yeah just don't take your extra PIP money and play when you want I feel like that's how golf should be I'm up for player freedom that's why I've been mainly on the live side on when it comes to, the, to that debate is just from the feud there but no I mean if you're going to be the spokesman for the PJ Tour you don't do this then maybe Maybe he's kind of doing as a slap to the face of PJ Tour. Maybe he's upset with some of the positions he's been put in. I don't know. Maybe he's just doing what's best for him, which I do think is exactly probably what's going on at this point. But no, it's it's weird also too because he did miss the cut. It's not like that he's tired from playing the Masters. I mean, he, he and you look at his game, right? It's not like he's hurt. He gained more than he gained almost two shots off of the tee, so he's able to swing just fine. His irons weren't very good, and his short game was absolutely horrible, just like it was at the Players Championship earlier this year so no it's uh it's just weird that that out of all people sam it would be him to uh, to not play in this many elevated events up to this point yeah and you can call me a rory hater if you want to i picked him to finish second in the golf tournament guess what he missed the cut i thought that this masters set up better for rory than it did for scotty scheffler it did for john rom who was struggling with the driver coming in Rory McIlroy came up small again, and that is why, T-Dub, I would not consider Rory McIlroy a legend or the next legend since Tiger Woods because you can't go 10 years basically in your prime without winning a major when you have that much talent. He comes up small in major championship after major championship, and I'm tired of picking Rory McIlroy when he shows me that little bit of form before a major championship and then comes up small again, T-Dub. What do you think 
you saw from Rory this week that was the same as every other major we've seen in the last decade, that Rory was overrated coming into another major again. Well, it seems like that, that the majors at this point, and definitely the Masters, is clearly in his head. I mean, the start that he's gotten off to in the first round of, of, the, of the Masters has been just absolutely crazy with how horrible it has been. And so, so no, he, he's, he's at the point now, Sam, I think that he, he's, a, he's a superstar in golf. He is. But, no, he is not a legend at this point. He's not going to be looked in the annals of a Ben Hogan or an Arnold Palmer or a Tiger Woods. He's not, no, he's not even close to that. So, but, but no, he is a superstar in today's day and age. He has been in his prime for essentially what feels like 15 years. And he's gone on a 10-year stretch now not winning a major. It's, it's something that you don't see very often. Usually when someone has a major drought, it's because they go on a pretty long duration of, of not good golf. But Rory's been playing solid golf for essentially, like I said, 15 years now. I mean, he's had his dips where in 2018 he kind of dipped. In, in 2013 was really when he was at his worst. But in 2018 he kind of dipped down about 20th in the world then the same thing happened in 2021 so he's had his, his fair lows but that's really been about as low as he's got. he's not falling outside of the top 100 like we've seen with players like Hendrick Stimson and, and guys like that who have come back no he's been he's just been right there the entire time and just for whatever reason hasn't been able to get it done in an extremely long time and I think he'll get past the barrier at some point but I, I don't know if he'll ever win another Masters Sam because it's clearly something in his head the only way I feel like that he can win a Masters is if he is let's say, five or six back going into the final round and does what he did last year in 64 and somehow Scotty Sheffield crumbles. That's, I think that's the only way he'll be able to get it done because if he goes into Amen corner with a lead somehow, I don't see any way he's going to be able to hold on. And that's the majors. And then obviously this week withdrawing after everything that he said after the Masters and withdrawn from the RBC at this elevated event, TW clearly doesn't care about legacy on the PGA Tour, or at least the optics of how it might look of the health of the PGA Tour when their top star withdraws from the second elevated event in just six events, T-Dub. This is the hypocrisy I am finally bringing to light. And this was the epitome of last week where Phil Mickelson had a successful week and finally got the love that he deserves for changing golf for the better over this past year and a half. Let me take you back to the beginning. All that Liv wanted in the beginning was a measly fall series. That's all the Saudis wanted. They wanted to control the fall series. Jay Monahan. It wasn't about politics with Jay Monahan. They couldn't agree on a money number. Liv said, watch this, guys, and became a competitor to the PGA Tour and gave these players and finally compensated these players the way that they should be. If you look at the facts that golf is the third biggest sport in the U.S. right now and the average golfer is not getting paid, they're getting paid pennies on the dollar compared to the average baseball player. That is what Phil Mickelson was trying to bring up when he was ostracized over this past year. But you didn't hear that in the golf media. You heard... Phil's comments on the politics of the situation. He was being ostracized because the Golf Channel and all of these these media outlets, their paychecks are directly dependent on the success of the PGA Tour. So you didn't hear any of that. But my point here, T-Dub, is that 
No one wants to bring that up, and it was never about the politics. Phil was exposing the tour, and the politics were just a convenient excuse for the golf media and the PGA Tour to use in the fact that Phil was always right about this situation, and this week, Phil finishes second in the Masters, and then after that is proven right that Every single player, even if your name is Rory McIlroy, is going to do what's best for you. And Rory proved that the week after the Masters this week. Hell of a week for Phil Mickelson. I cannot be happier for him. Every single professional golfer owes him a percentage out of the paychecks they are receiving right now. There's a lot of validity to what you're saying, Sam. And back to the, the Rory not playing this week thing. It's like, my biggest question is, why are we having damn elevated events the week after Masters? I mean, that doesn't seem like the most advantageous thing to do. But at the same time, you got to make the the, uh, the the sponsors happy. And you're going to have a situation like this later on in the year, too, with at the Travelers Championship. It's the week after the U.S. Open, and the U.S. Open's in, in Los Angeles, California, and the Travelers is in Connecticut. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy to ask all those guys to travel across the country again to play the next week. It just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And I think even guys who would give up a little bit of their pit money to, to maybe not have to endure that, especially after the U.S. Open of all golf tournaments. And, and also, too, I mean, like, I, I, there'll probably be some elevated events down the road that'll be before majors. And, I mean, I remember back when the WGC Bridgestone was the week before uh, the PGA Championship from this years, and I thought that was stupid. I mean, I hated that whenever that was the case. But it ended up being like that. I think that's one of the things that maybe some of the lift players were upset about. I mean, it obviously worked out for Kepka playing good at Live Orlando and going there. But a lot of people don't want to be forced out to play the week before a major because they like to go down there and practice and, and game up. So who knows? Maybe Rory was just boycotting. Maybe he didn't want to have elevated events week after majors. And he's just like, okay, well, I'm not going to play just the day before. I don't know. I, I don't think that's the case. But, but at the same time, it's just, I don't know, Sam, the timing of the elevated event is weird. But if you're going to be a spokesman of the PJ Tour and they are going to have an elevated event, you should probably be there. There's no doubt about it. And for everyone out there saying live is an exhibition because of the format, let's not forget that next year the PGA Tour is going to no-cut limited field events, T-Dub. Uh, so their argument is completely out of the window. Liv had three players in the top four at the biggest tournament in golf, and Rory McIlroy missed the cut, and now he's withdrawing uh, from regular season tour events. Uh, that's all I have to say about that, T-Dub. So let's get into a little abbreviated version of our RBC Heritage Preview. Obviously, Harbor Town, some of the smallest greens uh, on the PGA Tour. Uh, no Rory McIlroy this week. What's the field looking like? It's still an absolutely loaded field. There, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, it's pretty much it, with the exception of maybe Rory, and I don't know of anyone else who's not playing. I mean, you look at, as you were in the top five, you got Roms, Scheffler's playing speed, Cantlay, Morikawa, is in the field. I mean, so you got Shoffley, Sung J.M., Hovland, Cam Young, Finau. I mean, so, yeah, it's just absolutely loaded field. JT's in it. Max Homa is playing. Everyone's favorite, Terrell Hatton, is in the field. So, I mean, how could you not uh, root for that? Ricky Fowler is in the field, a local guy that everyone will like. And so you, you look at the course, Sam, and you're, you're exactly right. Extremely small greens. And actually, you look at most Pete Dye golf courses, and they're really nothing like Harbortown. There's some different bunkering and stuff. But no, Harbortown kind of sticks out uh, against some of the other Pete Dye designs in this course you don't have to hit it very far at all there's gonna be a lot of holes where guys can't take driver there will be some holes where guys can take advantage of their length by cutting some corners but generally distance isn't predominantly here accuracy is by far the most important thing and then around the greens is, is very prominent 
at this course as well. So you look at a little different from what you see at Augusta National, where it'd be usually a pretty bomber's paradise. Guys can just overpower it with, with their driver is going to be worth that. But this week, Sam, it's going to be look towards more traditional shorter hitters and, and around the green guys or guys that have been able to do well here. But even though distance still will be an advantage as it always is. No doubt about it, T-Dub, and this RBC is a little bit more interesting this year because it is an elevated event. Like you said, all the top players other than Rory in the field this week, your top five favorites are Scotty Scheffler, Patrick Cantlay, John Rahm, Morikawa, and Xander Shoffley. That is an elite list of golfers right there, but it's interesting because the RBC has had some I don't know, journeyman winners, no-name winners in the past, but it's always been guys that have struck their irons solidly throughout the week. If I look at Jordan Spieth's strokes gained approach numbers from last year for the event, he gained over a full shot strokes gained approach and actually lost a full shot on the greens and still won the golf tournament. So I'm looking for solid iron players this week at the RBC. Ironically, uh, remember last last year, Jordan Spieth missed the cut at Augusta National, goes into the RBC and wins and then finishes second at the Byron Nelson. He loves playing this time of year. It's an elevated event, so I don't think I'm wasting him. I'm going to pick T-Dub Jordan Spieth in my one-and-done pool this week at the RBC. I think that's a pretty solid pick. Um, I think that, as you mentioned, it's a pretty good game for this course. His putting last year at this tournament was just absolutely horrible. So, no, I mean, he had, I mean, I think it's the last hole. He missed like an 18-inch putt, and, it, yeah, it was just not very good at all. But, but to your point, Sam, about some journeymen who have won here, just to put it in perspective, obviously, Spieth won last year. But before that, Stewart Sink won here. I mean, he was, what, 40 something years old, way late 40s, whatever. He won there. You have uh, Webb Simpson was a really good player, but he was still uh, not as good as he was back in, maybe 2012-ish. C.T. Pan, Satoshi Kadira, Wesley Bryan won here three years in a row. So, I mean, that just kind of puts it into perspective. Carl Peterson won back in 2012. Um, but my one-and-done pick who won back here in 2014, Sam, Matt Kuchar. I, I mean, I think that he's going to play pretty good. This is a guy, Sam, who has, every time he's played this course, he has never missed a cut at the RBC Heritage. I, I, I was looking through wow. it, and I'm like, I'm trying to find a cut miss. I'm trying to find a cut miss, and I just I, I can't find it. Unless he played here before 2004. That's the latest that, that my numbers go back to. But, no, he's uh, he just plays the course well, finished third here last year. And remember, he's used to, he was used to playing in the Masters a lot and then coming here and playing. But last year didn't make it in the Masters field, came here and still finished third. So he's probably gone off only done some practice and made the group play at match play and then finished third. At, uh, at the Valero Texas Open the week before the Masters where he needed a win to get in just was a little bit short. So, no, I think uh, Matt Kuchar playing a good golf on the course that he likes. I'm going to run him out in the one and done. I'm, I think that uh, I'll be pretty good with that pick. T-Dub, I want to hear your DraftKings lineup here in a second, but I do want to talk about one popular pick at Augusta National uh, for the Masters last week. That was Corey Connors, who won the week before, ends up missing the cut at Augusta. Um, but he does have a solid record here at the RBC. Has a tie for 12th and a tie for 4th. Also has a tie for 21st in his last three years at the RBC. Did you see anything from him? Because I thought he was due to have a big week at Augusta last week um, and maybe a sneaky pick for the RBC this week. Maybe he just got the bad end of the draw or something. Yeah, really disappointing pick last week in the Masters. I had him in some DraftKings lineups, and he really, really let me down. His putter and his short game were just absolutely horrible. But at this course, three missed cuts the three times he's played it, but the last three years, 12, 4, 
and 21st. And, and as you always expect, he's hit his ball, hit, hits his irons really well at this course. But also, too, the last three years, or the last two years, pardon me, that he's played this tournament, he's gained shots on the greens, which is something that the first four years he was not able to do. So maybe getting on some greens he was comfortable with, but also, too, maybe it's just from the hesitancy, Sam, of, uh, of seeing how bad he played last week when I had him in some pools. So, no, I, I probably won't be picking Corey Connors. So that usually means that I was just a week too early on picking him, and he'll play really good. No doubt about it. And it's a crapshoot of the guys at the top. That's why I kind of want to focus on a couple other guys. Obviously, when you have Scotty and Cantlay and Rom and Morikawa, Shoffley, I mean, we could even go down the top 20 guys. I mean, Hovland and Finau, M, Young, Just, Justin Thomas, Hatton, all those guys could play well. Max Homa, Jordan Spieth, all those guys. But T-Dub, I, I want to focus on a couple other guys, like a, a Ricky Fowler who didn't qualify for the Masters, but he's made 10 cuts in a row. Do you think we could see any fireworks out of Ricky or you know, maybe a Siwoo Kim or uh, some of these other guys that we don't normally see like a, in the RBC, like a Shane Lowry or you know something like that, a Sahithi Gala who played solid uh, at Augusta last week or Keegan Bradley, some of those guys, some of those... Big, bigger names, but they're not necessarily what I would consider elite. Yes, I, I like Siwoo Kim this week. I have him in uh, at least one of my DraftKings lineups that I know of. And, uh, and as far as Ricky goes, yes, he has been playing some some really, really good golf. Like you said, he's made 10 cuts in a row. He's not missed a cut going all the way back to the Shiners Tr- Children's Open last year in October. So, yeah, I've been playing good, but hitting his irons exception. Well, it looks like he's gained shots, gained approach going all the way back to the FedEx St. Jude. That's just a streak that keeps on going on like clockwork. Still a little streaky with the putter. He'll have really good weeks with it, and then he'll have some down weeks, so if he can get that figured out. But the thing that alarms me, Sam, he's played this tournament six times. He's missed the cut five of them. I mean, he's five of six missed cuts at this tournament. The one time he did make the cut, he did finish eighth, so he doesn't have that in there. But the last time he's played this course, Sam, the last five times, he's uh, gained, he's lost strokes game putting. So maybe something about these green surfaces, he doesn't like it. But if he can get streaky with the putter, uh, he'll do it. But no, I, I do expect that missed cut streak to, to probably end and he'll play but no I don't think this is the course that he'll get his uh, his uh, first victory in a long time alright T-Dub let's talk about the big guns Scheffler Cantlay Ron Morikawa Shoffley Hovland um, you know out of the top guys I mean I could even keep going down the list like I said out of those top guys who do you think has the best week this week I know I'm being boring here but I'm going with Scheffler yeah, Scheffler I think has to be the pick I, his partner was just absolutely horrible last week at the Masters, so hopefully he can get that figured out a little bit. Uh, Patrick Cantlay, who we just talked about earlier about being being so slow, he uh, he's actually played this course really really well in the past. He finished second. He actually lost in the playoff last year uh, to Cantlay, or uh, not not to Cantlay, to Spieth on this course, and then finished third before that in 2019. Finished seventh here in 2018. So yeah, he really likes this course. So I think he'll be someone uh, to really look out for as well. Rom coming off the Masters win, I'm not sure how much I look into that. He could just be flat. Um, this is a course I do feel like sets up really well for Morikawa, though. He's made the cut in the three years that he's played here, finished seventh in, in 2021, finished 26th last year. But the three times he has played it, he has lost a decent amount, almost half, a, at least half a shot every single time putting. So if he can get that part of it figured out, he always hits his irons really well here and has been hitting his irons really, really well, at least this year. In particular, he finished 10th last week at the Masters. So, yeah, I, I look for Morikawa to have a pretty solid week uh, this week. I just think that it's a, a really a course that is tailor-made for his game. T-Dub, go ahead and give us your DraftKings lineup for this week. So uh, a guy that the analytics are really, really high on is Russell Henley. And uh, he played really good last week at the Masters. He doesn't have necessarily the best record at this golf course. He did finish ninth and sixth, uh, or his two highest finishes 
at this tournament. But those have a decent amount of missed cuts in there, but has been playing some really good golf as of late, finished 19th at the Players' Championship. And something that he has not been doing very well lately has been putting, or I'm sorry, before the last couple of weeks was putting, and the last two weeks he's been gaining an uh, overshot on the green. So I expect Russell Henley to play pretty well. That is, of course, another good uh, iron striker. Andrew Landry is my cheap play at 6,000. He's uh, He has not been playing very well at all, but he is four for four on the four times he's played this course. He's made the cut. So I needed someone cheap because I went top-heavy with uh, some other things. Colin Morikawa is my most expensive. That's the guy who I, I was just talking about. Um, JT Poston is a 7,300. I think he's a good uh, middle value play. He's uh, played this course really well in the uh, in the past. He finished third here last year. Which there, there's a big group of people who only took the playoff by, I believe, one shot. Um, so, yeah, he's played good. And then I started to finish eighth and sixth in 2019 and 2020. So, JT Poston really likes something about the scores. And then another two big names, as I said, I went top heavy. Uh, Xander Shoffley and Cam Young. Uh, two guys are playing exceptional. Cam Young finished third here last year. Just barely missed out on that playoff. And then uh, Shoffley, as we had mentioned a lot in our uh, in our preview for the Masters on how well he had been playing, he just continued it last week with a uh, another top ten at Augusta. So has he has three for three on cuts on this course. Hasn't finished better in thirty seconds, but uh, I expect that to come around just because he's been playing so solid. No doubt about it. Those are your picks for the RBC Heritage. At Harbortown, Tita, my last question is a question about Harbortown, the golf course. I mean, these guys, especially the ones that played at Augusta National, I feel like have a lot of work to do this coming week on the greens because they are so different. They're a lot more grainy than they saw at Augusta National. Obviously, Harbortown having Bermuda greens. Uh, what things would you be focusing on to try to – you know, get the, the extremely fast greens at Augusta out of your mind and kind of work your way into a better putt or a good putting week this week at, at the RBC. Well, one thing that's beneficial is that uh, Augusta is not extremely far away from Harbortown. It's a lot easier travel than going across country. So they'll have a little bit more time to get over there and get used to it. And I think, I think you're exactly right, Sam. I just think it's going to take a lot of work on just speed on the greens, just hit you a lot of a lot of different putts at, at different breaks, too. And what I like to do is go through and do, like, a soft, medium, firm stroke. So you can see exactly how much it's breaking. Because a lot of people just think speed is how close they get to the hole. But speed determines the line. So you need to know that, okay, I'm, I'm going to figure out how hard I'm going to hit this putt before I determine my line. So, yes, it's extremely important. And also around the greens as well. I mean, it's going to be a little bit uh, probably more grainy than they had at Augusta for sure. And then also in that that aspect it's just it's an entirely different course and so it's not going to be as minimally strenuous in my opinion i haven't looked at the forecast so maybe the wind will blow but at the same time i think that you can you can get away within a lot of irons on this course there's a lot more of a placement track than, than Augusta is you can just kind of bomb it out there so no it'll take a little bit of adjusting but it's uh, it's something that uh, maybe some of the guys who didn't play last week at Augusta in those horrible conditions especially on the weekend they have a little bit of advantage especially they've been working hard and being motivated on their games uh, because they didn't make the Masters like players who like Matt Kuchar and Ricky Fowler, I assume, were. No doubt about it. I'll be looking forward to watching another elevated event on the PGA Tour this week at the RBC Heritage, or the Rory is back chilling Heritage, is like I uh, like to coin it. But T-Dub, one more thing here before we get out of here. You, you quickly mentioned it earlier. We do have to talk about this for a second. Will Zalatoris out for the year uh, and has just had back surgery over the past couple of days. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I just hate this for such a talented 
guy and such a young guy that normally we don't see back surgeries for guys in their 20s and he's such a talented ball striker if not the best ball striker on the PGA Tour you this is just something that you hate to see uh for Will Zalatoris and we wish nothing but the best for him going forward and and hopefully a quick recovery right well 100 percent. and Sam it's very shocking whenever I heard it because I mentioned earlier the first group I saw come through down at Amen Corner Hole 12 was Billy Horschel and Matty Sitt. Well, the second group was Will Zalatoris, Cam Young. And Zalatoris stepped up there, looked like he was healthy, hit a nice little iron in it about four feet. I mean, I'm like, man, this guy might might be solid if he can just figure out how to putt. And then figure out he had to withdraw the next day. I mean, luckily he didn't have him, you know, at least from a betting perspective, didn't have many pulls or anything. But, uh, but yeah, you're exactly right. Hopefully he can just come back and stay healthy. Only 26 years old, not a good sign uh, for his health because uh, – if, if he's not able to get his swing back to where it was, I thought after the uh, at the the uh, Genesis at Riviera that where he finished fourth that he had gotten something figured out. And it seemed like that uh, you know he, he's, he was still gaining shots with his irons, but his putters just what had been so bad. And I thought that was mainly it, but maybe there's some more health concerns there. Well, so we and talk, up, we know like was, we we know that I mean just from following Tiger Woods that it's tough to practice your putting as much when and I know that some things are mental with Zalatoris, but. Uh, maybe he wasn't able to practice his putting as much with these back issues, right? I think there's a lot of validity to that for sure. I mean, similar to like maybe Hideki Matsuyama has been dealing with some neck issues over the time. And, and yeah, so yeah, you're not able to practice near as much as you want to. And uh, hopefully Zalatoris can take the full year off, come back the next year as a, as a young stud like he is. I mean, just because he's one of the best iron players I've ever witnessed. And if he can, that's going to be a shame if uh, someone who gets the ball that pure isn't able to, to come back and get healthy. I'm rooting for the kid. I hope that he can. And uh, but at the same time, Sammy, if he can come back, come back and swing like he used to, there's no guarantee that that uh, putter. I mean, if it's already as bad as it is now, it, it could get a lot worse. It could get better, but it also could go the other way. No doubt. And uh, T Dub, the last thing I want to talk about about this situation is why now? Why not over the off season? Do you think he tried to push it for Augusta National and he just couldn't go, or do you think there's there's more to this story? It's, it's a really good question because. Like I said, the swing looked back to normal. I mean, from what we've seen on TV and, and even what I saw in person, I mean, it looked, it looked just like it did at the PGA Championship last year. So, I mean, no, it was it was an absolute shock. I mean, it, it, maybe he re-aggravated it again doing something. I don't know. Or maybe he just made a swing. Because what they made it sound out to be whenever he withdrew on, on Thursday was that he just uh, he couldn't get loose. And so I'm like, man, that's really crazy. But then you figure out that he had to have this full surgery and that he's going to be out for months at a time. I mean, it's just. It's, it's crazy that that he was he looked so healthy and then it was down but but no it's uh yeah it was pretty shocking from that aspect and uh, I, I am worried about him though I truly am because uh, this is a little bit too young to be having uh, a surgery that serious and then the last thing I wanted to get to on this T Dub is a lot of people have prognosticated that. Joaquin Neiman might have some back issues going forward in his career, um, but I saw an interesting thing on Twitter that Joaquin Neiman's hips at Impact are ahead of Will Zalatoris's hips, and it, and for some reason at Impact it's it's causing more pressure on Will Zalatoris's lower back. And do you think there's any validity to that whatsoever that maybe it's because of the hip action that Will Zalatoris has, or maybe that his swing and, and how the technicalities of his swing might've caused this? I do think that there is some validity to that for sure, because you know, back what was it, 30, 40 years ago, you were taught to do the reverse D type swing. You think of the old school where you could just like, you, you take the arch in your back and you're going to have a reverse D 
logo, but now you don't do that. One of the main reasons is because uh, of back health. And yes, you, you think about where the hip placement is, and that's where it really connects to the lower back. It, most of the time, whenever you have a back issue in golf, it is the lower back. That usually, it's not every time, but but generally that is, and that's because of where that the hips turn out. So yes, I do think so. I don't know. I still think Joaquin Neiman. He's still a very young kid. I do think that I don't see any way that he can, unless he's just some physical freak, where he doesn't have some sort of issues coming down the road. But yeah, Zalatoris is his style of swing. While it leads to very, very pure iron strikes, it's going to lead to lower back pain. It's not an extreme shock that it happened. I think it's just a little shock that it happened so fast. It may be something you expected to see mid-30s, low-40s, something like that. But no, it happened at 26 years old. is uh, is not a good sign. But hopefully, it can, he can just get it fixed. Maybe be He'll uh, probably have to deal with stuff like this for the rest of his life but you know make this be the number one bad issue that he has to deal with through his career health-wise and he can come back a healthy better never and hopefully he can practice his putting because that's really been his downfall of his career so far no doubt well we're praying for will zalatoris uh throughout this year and for those wondering he will have a medical exemption on the pga tour so he will be obviously uh just starting next year like he's starting this year um so hopefully will gets back healthy and we see him have success in 2024 t-dub to end the show just your final thoughts throughout the past week and uh obviously crazy experience being at augusta national for the first time just give me your general thoughts about how you will remember this week i mean blessed i mean that's that's the only way i could put it i mean just everything that has transpired i mean so much has happened really even since uh you know just within the last 10 days of going all the way down there to travel Getting there, getting the full experience, soaking in everything, and having the great hospitality uh, of your dad and yourself. I mean, it was just absolutely great to uh, to be able to just experience everything. I, I'm so happy that I got to experience it with my dad. I'm I'm so happy that you got to experience it with your mom and dad. It's just memories that I will never be able to forget for the rest of my life. And uh, I, I just hope it's not the last time I get to go to Augusta because uh, it, it's just so beautiful. I, I, it's it's the golf equivalent to the Garden of Eden. And uh, unfortunately, Sam, you got to see it on Saturday that it can even rain and we have some miserable weather in the Garden of Eden at times. So uh, it it kind of puts that rumor to bed. But no, just an absolutely beautiful week. And it's something I will never forget to the day I die. I'm just blessed to uh, to be able to experience everything the way that I did. It's uh, like I said, it's it's really hard to put into words. I have so many words that I do want to say, but I just I can't get out how beautiful it was and just the overall emotions and happiness that it brought me. No doubt about it. I feel the exact same way. Blessed not only, uh, you know, for being there this week. Thank you to uh, the Hump Man. Thank you to everyone who made last week possible. All the producers, Q-Tip and Preston Poole last week. Back in the studio while we were at Augusta National. That's all the hard work that people don't see helping us put on the live radio shows and helping us uh, you know, get the audio for these podcasts so you guys can have content right when we are able to get it to you. And speaking of that, we are going to have massive amounts of content coming out this golf season. We have some really cool stuff lined up uh, for the live event in Tulsa in May. Uh, we got some, you know, special guests coming up, uh, not only that week, but Prior to that, leading up to that week, we're really excited about some things we're doing there. And then also just follow us um, on social media at the 73rd hole and also hit that subscribe button. We're here two times a week. We give you guys 
uh, recap of the previous week and give you guys a preview of the of the tournament coming up. Uh, so definitely stay tuned uh, for all the great things we're doing here on the 73rd hole. T-Dub, I'm thankful for you and Woody for doing such a great job last week. Uh, it made everything a whole lot easier considering T-Dub. By the way, we had some uh, master plan of how we were going to do all our reports last week and it got blown up because of the weather uh, and everybody just did their part and made everything very, very easy. So thank you to everyone and Cisco uh, and and Kim McLeod at Golf Oklahoma and the Sports Animal, respectively. For Taylor Williams and Jim Woodward, this has been Sam Humphreys on Oklahoma's Leader in Golf, the 73rd Hole Podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma.